0: Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG. This is Scott Powell, Bowman over here in Dumfries, Scotland, and I'm joined by my counterpart, the ying to my yang, the man with whom I've done three phenomenally successful and critically acclaimed, never had a bad review yet, series, Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor, the BFG from Kanata, Ontario. How are you doing, Josh?
1: I'm doing just fine, Bowman. How about yourself? Good, man. This is
0: exciting. This is us uh, starting our new show here on uh, Conan Doyle and the Sherlock Holmes investigations. This is a project that came out of our James Bond work earlier uh, this year and, of course, all of last year. When uh, I remember, we were looking—I don't know what book it was. I think it was Goldfinger, and we were talking about the narrative structure of that novel and. And you had drawn some reference to Sherlock Holmes and had made a, you know, a passive throwaway comment about wanting to maybe someday doing a little investigation of your own into the works of this literary ancestor of Bond. (laughs) And uh, from there, from there, here we are. So, uh, yeah, this is this is cool. You you want to uh, tell the folks at home and uh, ourselves, I guess, what the the purpose of this project is.
1: Well, it's just an it, uh, essentially it's an examination of, uh, sh- of of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, their place in pulp culture, uh, the narrative of, of, of the stories themselves, uh, how they come across as little li- uh, li- literature back then, and of course even today. Um, just th- just the legacy of the character itself, and just having fun. Reading the books and taking part in the mysteries and 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 allowing all of us like everyone has collectively felt over the years and years and years, decades and decades of how stupid we are compared to uh, Sherlock. There, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that
0: there's ever a chance of uh, competing with the man on the page. But um, it's this is this is going to be like our Bond series and our music series in the past. This this is going to be quite a um, a commitment, isn't it?
1: I think so. Uh, We have a lot of short stories to go through. And even though we had a lot of novels to read for the Bond novels, we still have to read individual stories. And there's a lot of individual short stories that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote uh, in the Sherlock Holmes uh, part of it anyway. So that's a lot of stories to go through. And even though those stories are are short, they're also going to be discussed at some length, each of them, right? So, I mean, even though, like... It's probably about the same volume. Uh, I don't know. It was the same, would you say it's the same volume of text? Like, if you, I guess, if you take like *A Study in Scarlet*, *The Sign of Four, *The, the Adventures of uh, Sherlock Holmes*, *The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes*, *Return of Sherlock Holmes*, *The Hound of the Baskervilles*, uh, *The Valley of Fear*, and, and uh, I guess the last couple of case files as well. Is that almost the length of the Fleming novels, or would you say it's probably a little shorter?
0: I would say it's definitely the length of the Fleming novels, um, and given the the, the writing and uh, the age of the texts, I'd say it's probably going to be a little bit more dense. Um, yes, I, I don't think it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be a series that is, uh, you know, too demanding on our specific and shared skills as readers. But I think no. I will, um I do think it's going to challenge us in new and interesting ways. But in terms of body of text, yes, I think it's equal to. And probably pretty close equal to the Fleming, if not maybe a little bit more. But um, like you say, you can move through short stories in a way you can't move through novels. And although we're going to treat them all um, as individuals, it's it's going to have a totally different shape to that. And before we get ahead of ourselves and make too many comparisons to Bond, um, you know, th- this may not be heard by people who are interested in James Bond or who have. Uh, An interest in following what we've done in the past. So we should probably say a few things about how we're going to approach each episode of this series.
1: Yes, that's a good idea, Bowman. Uh, So just for, uh, I think just for just to before to continue here, you know, just so that our our listeners, if there are any, uh, are, are not at a loss. Why do you call yourself Bowman, Scott? Bowman,
0: uh, right, that was a name given to me way back in uh, junior high school by buddies of mine, um, <clears throat> named after Scotty Bowman, the famous NHL coach of Montreal Canadiens and uh, Detroit Red Wings, and now he works as a senior hockey super, or what is it, a, an analyst and a, some organizer of the Chicago Blackhawks, he's the um, father of the current GM, so yeah, that's um, that's where the name Bowman came from, it's always stuck, and uh, that's just
1: kind of what it is, And you BFG? BFG? Well, I mean, I have to be be very tall. Uh, I've been. I'm my niece and uh, my half sister refer to me as Ladder Man. Uncle Josh is Ladder Man. Um, so I'm a very tall individual, six foot five. You've seen me, so. Of
0: course I have. Yeah, I know. How tall yeah, Ladder Man. It, it makes sense. It, it makes Man. sense
1: if you see me. Um, BFG, of course, comes from the Roald Dahl novel of the same name. Um, And it also works as, you know, BFG is something I've always been used. Um, uh, One of my friends, uh, he kind of says BFG is my rapper name. So I've I've kind of adopted that a little bit as well.
0: Not not in uh, your rap, though. I've noticed that none of your lyrics refer to them, uh, refer to yourself as BFG.
1: Well, I'm not as arrogant and... uh, (laughs) As, as some rappers out there, you know, I kind of forego the bling and stuff. And I uh, kind of prefer... And the, the
0: music. I, you also forego yeah. the music.
1: <laughs> and, the, and the music, too, yeah. And the rhyme, you know. Yeah, you don't need I, any of that. I also forego that, that as well. All right. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the bling I'm not a big fan of. Like right now, you know, like I'm kind of all ready for Sherlock Holmes here in my, in my uh, bathrobe. Well, smoking jacket, ergo ba- bathrobe here. Uh, that I got for Christmas, nice and warm and cozy, and I'm at my study here with my uh, literature uh, surrounding me, and uh, my computer here, and my notes, and my orange juice, and half-eaten crust, a bit, a bit of toast left, and uh, yeah, so that's me, the BFG, um, the big the big fracking to use Battlestar Galactica vernacular giant.
0: And how, Josh, was it that you and I came to start talking about what, Bond or Sherlock or films or scores or anything at all? How, how did this all
1: start? Uh, probably the fact that we were cousins who were very close <laughs> when we were young. And uh, and we grew apart a little bit, you know, in the early teens, from, you know, in late childhood, early teens. But then we, then like for your, for, um, I guess it was, um, your it was for, it was for uh, Aunt Barb's wedding. Yeah, Aunt Barb's wedding. That we kind of reconnected again after that. When you had like your crazy mop of like of uh, of ginger afro going on there and your metal bands.
0: I don't remember things the same way you do. I don't remember there being really a a separation of sorts. I remember there being geographical distance between us, but I don't. Well, I mean, I
1: I left yeah in '89. I moved from Newfoundland, uh, our uh, alma mater, I suppose, of uh, of of of, uh, terrain. Uh, all the way back, I would not alma matter, That's the wrong term. I meant to say uh, mother country, I guess, if you want to go all Soviet there, um, <laughs> to to the mainland Canada, you know, becoming a mainlander and living in Kingston and then Peterborough and then finally where I am, I'm here in Ottawa. Hmm. So yeah. I think there, there's a bit of a separation when you moving from Newfoundland yeah, to course, Ontario, course, but... being separated from all that, you know, especially at that at, at, at that age in in my case.
0: Yeah, but. Um... Well, you know, way leads on to way, and you find a way back. And best man of my wedding.
1: Yeah, I, I, I did my best, I think, in that regard, and I'm glad that you, uh, you appreciated it.
0: You did. No strippers, though. I was disappointed with that. No stag party,
1: really. No. Um, um having faced uh, stag parties and and a stripper all in the one circumstances, and for on, on on another friend's uh, bachelor or stag night. Um, believe me, you're glad that didn't that that didn't that, that nothing to sort like that went down. Well, I'm not because, talking about like you your CD, bank CD, CD. Mean I no, true, true. I'm not talking about CD, CD You know, uh, going going down, but just unfortunate emotions of people and anger and broken glass and break-ins mm. and possible pimps coming and you know nothing like that at all, right?
0: No, you're. I guess you're you're, you're best served not not
1: to have done that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is kind of getting into a place where I don't want to put stuff on my Facebook walls here. So we'll just uh, continue.
0: Right. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, back to the present. Um, this is our fourth series as such, isn't it? The fir- first time Josh and I got together for uh, for recording and, and trying for the sake of posterity to um, structure our, what, our our enthusiasms for subjects was when we did a, uh, a rather lengthy series on uh, preserving film scores. Motivated by a show that uh, we caught on the radio where these so-called experts and film critics were picking the best film music of all time, uh, Josh and I figured we could do that better. And um, we did. <laughs> we did do it better. And we, we created this, um, proposed really, this uh, fictional um end of days and we were given the task of preserving uh the 25 greatest film scores and we had to follow certain well we, we didn't necessarily we didn't follow uh protocol on the scoring system but we had to uh include certain things and it was a lot of yes. fun it was a lot it of was, fun yeah and then it, and yeah then we moved it was, on it was,
1: it was it was a rough cut it was a rough cut but it was a good mm. rough cut you know it, it was, it, it was yeah. it, it was bumps and grinds along the way, but uh, it was enjoyable, and I think it got us in the spirit of going into the podcast mode. And yeah. I think, and then listening to other podcasts like like, like the Great Life of Caesar one out there. Mm, there's a couple of ones great, that yeah. I've been checking out myself on various other pop cultural fronts, and that 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 are quite good. Yeah,
0: and. You know, when we, we thought then about taking our music thing to the next level, so we, we brought in our enthusiasm for the James Bond series and the uh, yes. soundtracks, and, and we did a, sort of a ranking of those, which was a lot of fun. And then we decided to do our first proper uh, – although, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, while, while our film score work was pretty amateur, it, it, in, amateur in terms of production, it was very, very seriously researched. We did a shit ton of work on that. And, I was. Um, anyway, we decided to take a chunk out of the James Bond novels and read all the Fleming novels and analyze them. And we did that and had a great time with it. Just ended up there last month. We we brought the conclusion to it all. And um, this is probably our most literary um, or erudite approach, or sorry, um, option, I guess, was, was to do this, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're going from modern... Uh, like like well okay mid twentieth century uh, spy literature you know going to like late Victorian early Edwardian literature so I mean it's a different period altogether a different world to examine and uh, the, and of course we're dealing from a culture that when people who were writers were very educated and wrote in a different more Formal style, so it's definitely, I think, going to be a a, a challenge. But it's going to, but but I'm looking forward to that challenge. As Holmes says, the game is on.
0: Indeed, and just before uh, we close these little introductions, which are themselves pretty amateur, I got to be said, you know, we're not quite sure how to introduce ourselves in terms of what we've already done and what we should be talking about here. Um, Over here in Scotland, uh, also originally from Newfoundland, but I'm uh, I'm an English teacher, so I've been doing that for 11 years over here. And Josh, you're a film school graduate, um, equally if not better read than myself. We've always had different tastes in literature and in film, but we've also shared a lot of uh, tastes in film and literature as well. So yes. this is um, this is kind of it's a passion project for both of us. But m- I would say more more, you know, the whip was struck by yourself with Sherlock Holmes. You are the leader on this series. I mm-hmm. am very much the I'm the Watson to your Sherlock, I guess at least beginning, at least starting.
1: At least beginning, Um, yes. I guess we'll we'll see who has the one-man brinkmanship in that, hey? Well, maybe.
0: Yeah, I mean, we will. We will. Of course we will. But you're the one who has read more Sherlock Holmes than I have. Um, I'm looking forward to the short fiction, maybe a little more than you are. And um, I I don't know. We'll we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But we're starting today with episode one, The Study in Scarlet, which is the first time Holmes was in print. Though not necessarily the first time Conan Doyle experimented with uh, this type of a character. Um, What we're going to do is give a little introduction to Conan Doyle's life and to the Sherlock Holmes experience, I guess, as we've both met with it. Then we're going to have a short plot summary of the novel, and then we're going to get into the main feature focus of each episode, which is Lighting the Pipes. This is where the title comes from. Um, Josh, you want to say something about Sherlock and his pipes so that (laughs) I can put our scoring into context?
1: Well, I mean, what is there to say? It's an iconic thing. I mean, we've all seen the, the, the visuals of, like, you know Basil Rathbone and his and his pipe, you know, laying his pipe on the on the on the moors of Baskerville. Um, it, I mean, it's an iconic image with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, beyond the course, of the cocaine use uh, and other idiosyncrasies of the character. And uh, essentially, what it is is that um, lighting the pipes is, you know, sitting down, uh, getting ready to jump into the next mystery, and just and. Co- contemplating all of its factors you know as you puff away you know mm-hmm. yeah
0: well said and that's what we're going to do um, and the pipes it is an acronym much like uh, previous series we had an acronym this is a different one because the stories are different um the p stands for uh, principles yeah you out there <laughs> yeah principles these are the main characters of holmes and watson and kind of how they interplay their contributions idiosyncrasies And how they work. Basically, are we feeling like they're into it? And if they are, how are they into it? What score are we going to give them out of five based on their performances, their presence in the story? I A.K.A.
1: Or are they just plot devices?
0: Or are they just plot devices, yeah. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing to look for because um, there's a bit of that in this story too. But anyway, I.
1: Investigation.
0: The investigation, yeah. This is like our our mark for the plot itself and how well paced it is, and Conan Doyle's writing, and sort of the the way the way the scenes and the events um, are 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 strung together, are linked, are jump cut. Maybe this is yeah. sort of our writing assessed mark of the story and uh, the way it's come together. And this yeah. is always, this is always for me personally a, a really important score because this comes down to how the story looks and how it feels and how, how, what you take away from it in terms of its exactly. enjoyment.
1: Yeah, because a big part of the mystery, I mean, is the mystery itself. It's the clues that are left behind. It's the web that is woven, and it's how the best mystery stories are the ones that you know they begin with a uh, with with the crime, and then you have the mystery. T- to it which creates the allure of it like who caused it uh who are the suspects um are the are the, the clues that lead along the way you know and of course the, the problems that are encountered to to preventing the mystery from being solved and then the complications are then resolved and then you build to the big the butler did it you know by by the end of it all yeah but it's also in it's, I, it's I, like it's like clue but only on paper <laughs> what a terrible terrible metaphor
0: that's not terrible, man. Clue's got its place. I mean, Clue itself probably drew uh, massive inspiration from these stories and, and those like it. Um, you know, what is it? Most likely
1: Agatha Christie more so, I would say, than Sherlock Holmes. Okay, though.
0: maybe. But, yeah, again, you're more well-versed than me in that. I'm, I'm, I'm not that. I've only read one Agatha
1: Christie novel, so <laughs> I probably, probably not. You're still more well, well-versed than I am. But... you never read, like, an Agatha Christie novel, like uh, Poirot or anything like that? Did she do that Orient Express one?
0: Yes. Oh, yeah, I read that. I read that years and years ago, though. There you go. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're on even Orient on Agatha Christie yeah. again. Yeah, so I did.
1: Um, Although I probably read one of the... And, po- and Poirot was in that one, too. He was on the train. He was the detective, the Belgian, right?
0: Yes, that's right, yeah. My mother-in-law's nuts yeah. about uh, all of that Agatha Christie shit. Like, she can't get enough. Um, because there's all kinds of it on British television over here. Reruns on ITV and Poirot and... Uh, Death of, death in the Nile and all yep. that type of stuff. Anyway, uh, what was I going to say? Um, yes, before we leave that P, that second P for... Um, uh, sorry, the I for investigation and get on to the second P. It's also here that we're going to mark Conan Doyle's writing style. And that, for me, as I was trying to say, is really important because it's not just the investigation and the plot, but um, we, I, I, want to, I, I want to emphasize the idea that we're going to look at him as a writer too. And just as we did with Ian Fleming and James Bond, we came to recognize that Fleming actually has a lot of skill as a writer that is often overlooked, particularly now in view of how the films have come to influence the, the, the writing of the novels, you know, and or the reading yes. of the novels. And so the, the eye mark is also going to, at least for my purpose or my and, and my position, it's going to involve that, uh, that scoring for the writing itself. Yeah. Okay. The second P is for perpetrator. These are, of course, the men and women and suspects and criminals that are behind the crime that uh, will send um, Watson and Holmes out to discover. Then we have a mark as well for E, which is the environs and the environment, really, the locations, the back alleys, the uh, oh, you know, the, the apartment flats, the maybe overseas sites like like we have here in this story. You want to say anything else about the environments?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess the character of of of, of London, the city itself, because I mean, London's probably is one of That's, our main yeah. gonna be here. Uh, locales. So we'll get used to London a lot. Even though uh, early in, in, in the Sherlock Holmes novels, uh, you see a lot of uh, Edinburgh being visualized more so than London in his descri- in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's descriptions. Hmm. Do we? But regardless, London as a locale is very key. Um, the Thames itself, you know, the the, the the uh, the the docks uh, Baker Street uh, Scotland Yard uh, the moors outside the, the, you know all the counties outside the city where a lot of the mysteries take place so it, although it's all those environs as a whole and the atmosphere that they create and also key as well is some of the very um, vivid backstories that some of the characters have and uh, to uh, up to the moment the case has begun chronologically in the storyline and the locales in which they come from which are quite interesting actually especially in the case of the study in scarlet
0: Hmm. well um this is interesting to me i didn't know that he drew pictures of uh, edinburgh when he was working on you know trying to render london i mean it makes sense given you know where he's come from and his background but it uh I, I didn't. I didn't read a lot of Edinburgh when I was reading this. I didn't get a lot of Edinburgh feel. I got. I got London, and having been and spent time in both cities, I. I definitely yeah. got London from this. But that's interesting. Search. I'm only
1: quoting the Oxford edition of A Study in Scarlet and, uh, their, and their and their notes. Well, that they would and, know, and their, I guess, Yeah. He, he
0: fooled me. Let's put it that way. He fooled me. And um, Good. Good. <laughs> finally, S for supporting players. These are the police inspectors, the help that uh, Holmes or Watson employ. The different. Um, the different characters that kind of add texture and color and character to the story and support our main players and perpetrators. So that is it. That's our pipes. And when we go to light our pipes after each plot summary, we will, um, we will be giving scores of five on each of these components and creating for ourselves a massive index of short story and novel scoring for our Sherlock Holmes adventures.
1: You sound very excited, almost perhaps temescent, uh, in regard to when 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 you said index or whatever you said. You just sounded very excited about that. Is that the teacher in you, perhaps?
0: I, th- I think it is. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> I'm not aware of it, but yeah, I, th- I think you know. For years and years, I've been running a hockey pool that I love playing with stats and. I do, I, I do like figures and spreadsheets and stuff at work an awful lot. I don't like the stuff I have to do at work. It needs to be said, like tracking and monitoring on kids' attainment and marks for this and marks for that. But I think as a teacher, you got to be organized in lots of different ways. And and, and given the, the breadth and the scope of what we're doing here, reading these books, um, it helps massively to have a little something to do format-wise and scoring-wise so that when we forget perhaps about the things we read in the past, we've got the reminders and these conversations to, to tell us and signal kind of what we thought. And the scoring index will be an important part that will lead us to ranking these towards the end, but it won't be the only thing. We'll still have to deal with the aesthetic of it
1: all. Absolutely. And and I think it's just the overall picture. And in the end, I think we'll have our own rankings. I think, personally you know ingrained in our heads about how we feel about each individual story each individual book etc yeah totally
0: well with that said josh um let's start this let's get this show off the ground and running with uh, a study in scarlet and because it's our first episode uh you as in-house expert on all things sherlock holmes um I'm joking, of course. Uh, you, with more experience than me, at least. You're going to take the lead on a lot of what we do in these first early episodes. So, okay. why don't you start by talking about Conan Doyle, uh, giving us a little info on him, five or six minutes, and then we'll move on.
1: All right. Before I move on, to before we go okay. to Conan Doyle, yeah, though, sure. I do want to talk about, and I think this is a great way to kind of, because we're talking about James Bond and other influences right now. So, I think what we're going to do is, since we're going into a really analytical, literary study of Sherlock Holmes... And, you know, somewhat also tongue-in-cheek and, and just fun as a whole. You know, we're going we're, we're, we're to be, you know, we're, we're going to be intellectual about this. But at the same time, we're also going to have fun. Oh, yeah. Um, I think I just want to doff the pulp cultural um, mystique that we already have about Sherlock Holmes and get that out of the way. So we can kind of plunge right into Doyle himself and then into his works. Okay, go ahead. So, sir, you know, Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle. All right. So that's a pretty cool name. Uh, as a whole, I wouldn't mind having a kind of a cool name l- like that, it, although it, makes, it sounds like it's very like a British uh, aristocracy, even though that really wasn't the case for him. Um, he was a Catholic, a spiritualist, a Freemason, a surgeon, a writer of nonfiction, an innovator of the mystery novel, a writer of science fiction tales. He was a son, he was a father, and he was eventually a knight of the British Empire. That's a pretty um, inc- incredible career, in, you know, and life, in, in my personal opinion.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty full.
1: Yeah, so it definitely shows, you know, the, the breadth of his talent, you know, in terms of and his abilities, you know, and his skills that he's achieved throughout his life and and whatnot. And um, one thing I was really dis- I've really discovered about Sher- about Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, was going into the Sherlock Holmes books and seeing that he's written a lot of kind of like Burnwell, Cornwell, uh, Bernard. Cornwell-esque, like, military fiction about the Boer War and about the Napoleonic age and and stuff like that, and that's really intriguing to me, actually, so I think even after Sherlock Holmes is done, I'm going to venture into some of his other stuff. Cool, Um, And also, I also plan to read is uh, another character that he's known for, a lot of people don't know about this, is Professor Challenger, uh, who there was the most famous, of course, story with Professor Challenger is The Lost World. Yeah. Not to be confused with the Steven Spielberg Michael Crichton adaptation. No,
0: not 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 to be confused with the one where the bus hangs over the edge for like
1: thirty five percent of the entire film. Yes, or the the big dinosaur attack, and in in, well, actually, the dinosaur coming back to the mainland, I think, was actually stolen from the Lost World. But the the, the original text of the Lost World, I guess Spielberg forgot what book he was adapting. I don't know. <laughs> uh, moving forward, though. My earliest experience with Sherlock Holmes and the world of Conan Doyle was the Disney animated film with the great mouse detective. Do you remember that movie?
0: Yes. um, You took the words right out of my mouth, man. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we even saw that in cinema before you moved away because that was was my earliest as well. I I tried to think back past that. Like maybe playing Clue and if there was a bit of houndstooth pattern on the board. But I don't remember anything. (laughs) I don't remember anything Sherlock or detective like mimicking that you know what i mean like that that was it for yeah. me as well uh, and then probably clue took
1: over that clue yeah clue for sure and and then eventually you just get the the oh this is the literal you know uh, adaptation of it yeah yeah but oh by the way though, you know
0: they you know they, they call the game cluedo over here like you can't buy clue you buy cluedo is,
1: is that a copyright issue or
0: something I don't or no it must be cuz it's
1: pretty fucking stupid isn't it like <laughs> A Cluedo, <laughs> Cluedo, yeah. What is that supposed to mean? Like, is it like a is that like a, a Czech or a Polish translation of Clue? Or I don't, or know. Just... I don't
0: know. It's it's a it's played here this way in Scotland and England and Wales. I mean, Cluedo is the game you buy. So, Cluedo, me. yeah. I'll Weird, uh, I'll pick up a copy for you and send it across because all the characters are exactly the same. You get Professor Green and you got Miss Scarlet and all them. So it's no different. It's just I don't think shit maybe <laughs> maybe it's not even the same game i don't know but
1: who knows yeah uh, that's really interesting though
0: anyway you keep but, talking i'm gonna go crack myself anyways. first beer for the
1: afternoon yeah but i don't blame you so yeah the great mouse detective uh it was based on a children's story and it told the tale of basil of baker street who was a deducing brilliant rodent detective who must solve a mystery prompted by the evil professor radigan um, as you know, wonderfully voiced by uh, Vincent Price. By this point in pop culture, uh, Conan Doyle's famous detective was resoundingly entrenched. Basil was, of course, a cartoon variation of Sherlock Holmes, and his partner was, was an, was an addle brained interpretation of Dr. Dr. John Watson. Radigan was the villain, was none other than the anamorphic variant of James Moriarty, the master ne- nemesis of Sherlock Holmes. The, but the blueprint, the the mythology, you know, it was plain in the clouds in the sky, you know, like it was just the sky is blue. Like it, it's so clear now, you know, in that time period that that mythology existed so much, you know, like almost like a comic book mythology in the sense, you know, like, you know, you have Batman and the Joker and Alfred and Robin or you have like Spider-Man and you have, Sir J, you know, J. Jonah Jameson and the Green Goblin and Gwen Stacy and all that. Right. I mean, those, that world, that character was so entrenched in our culture by that point that the that signs were, were, were clear, and even, like, in the most filtered-down adaptations, you know, like a Disney version, for example. Mm. Okay, <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah, so the movie kind of affected me considerably as a child, uh, you know. You know, it hooked me into the allure of the British underworld or the under underworld in this case. Um, and the, you know just the world of Sherlock Holmes in general, that Victorian, Gothic, Macabre pre noir c- 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 kind of world, you know that I think it's that steampunk culture and um, horror culture has captured you know so well and that everyone just loves the look of it all, right. And they just don't realize that back then, you know, it wasn't exactly the utopian, Uh, cool society that people thought it was, you know? Um, Women still didn't have full rights, uh, repressed society, um, British colonialism and imperialism, European colonialism um there were, there were so many wars going on for complete greed <laughs> women didn't and, have and... All,
0: women didn't have any rights man like what are you talking about they might have had different clothes than they did 200 years previous but they No have... that's
1: true cuz that was prior yeah. to the suffragettes right cuz the suffragettes yeah. were only like yeah that's true that's true yeah so yeah co- color me wrong they didn't have any rights at all okay well as i said that just fix it that just you know that just um completes my argument there right but um anyways but I remember then later on, you know, when I moved to from Newfoundland to Kingston and then, you know, I was, I was going into my early teens and every day, you know, I would like to watch A&E, Arts and Entertainment, before it became like the Aliens, the reality TV channel. <laughs> um, they would always show like British, uh, British like series on there that I, that I got into. I think probably because of James Bond, I got inspired by some stuff, for example, like uh, uh the avengers with you know with patrick mcnee and diana rigg you know and um another show that they had on there was another was a antiques uh Amy loved the the they took the pbs the bbc british mysteries and showed them all the time and one of them was and it was one with like uh, a young uh, what's his name um ian mcshane called lovejoy and he was like a an antiques dealer who moonlighted as a detective Um, And, of course, then I'm getting to is Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes in a series in the 80s that A&E ran all the time, which is a very, very close adaptation of the source material. And that was just another experience of Sherlock Holmes. Um, But what really instilled to me the, the inscribing of Sherlock, of Arthur Conan Doyle himself in my mind outside of Sherlock Holmes and being an author and being a figure, you know, that influenced other authors and creators was the first season X-Files episode, Fire. You know, that somewhat loved, somewhat forgotten episode where Mark Shepard's pyrokineticist is attacking the British aristocracy in England and then in the U.S., leading the Scotland Yard D.I. Phoebe Green to come to America and have another hookup with her former Oxford classmate, Fox Mulder. You know, the paranormal homes of our day. And we learned that in Windlesham, where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was buried, they had an indiscretion on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's tomb. And, uh, you know, during his Oxford phase, before he became an FBI profiler, um, one can sense, you know, that the creation of Mulder and characters like him may have been some Sherlock Holmes influence on Chris Carter's part or merely an attempt to continue the long line of famous detectives from its sire, I guess, to use a a, a Mm. Anne Rice kind of term. Well, this, um,
0: this is an interesting point, um, and maybe it's a question that we should hold on to until the end of all of our reading. But do you think? And I mean, don't let the fanboy speak in you. I mean, try to try to be course. as objective as possible, um, because I'm I, I'm not sure. But do you think that if Conan Doyle were alive, he would see bits of his character that that, that Holmes Genesis in Mulder?
1: Uh, possibly no, because it's almost like, no, I, I don't, I, I don't know, like, Mulder does have the theories and he comes up with them and stuff, but I think he and pulls he is them always
0: more... right, like, the first three seasons, Scully never gets a chance to prove him wrong.
1: N- well, and then she also never sees the truth before her anyway, she always misses it all the time, right? Yeah. Which yeah, is very much kind of... like, women don't have any rights, so... I think that it was still it was still the '90s, right? I mean, they wanted like a Pamela Anderson like actress to play her character originally, so or Fox did anyway.
0: (laughs) And I'm I'm taking you off track. I'm just um, no, no, because he was a writer of science fiction as well. So it it begs the question. it Doesn't beg the question, but it makes me think of the question: Would Conan Doyle have enjoyed watching Mulder's adventures? Would he have liked the X Files? He probably would have.
1: I think he would have been a spiritualist and a guy who was in believe that fairies were that actually lived, lived and stuff like that. And being a Freemason Mason and being part of a society and, and like, and the whole thing about, you know, the, um, uh, conspiracy aspect of it. And I kind of, I can kind of see maybe that he could see probably in, the Mulder Scully dynamic, kind of like almost like a, a merging of Holmes's personalities as a whole, perhaps. So, you know, I, I think it's possible. And and uh yeah, just, just for the audience here, we are X-Files fans and have been for a long time. So you know, we're gonna drop references in pop culture every now and then to what this reminds us of. But it's really important to note that I mean, these characters, I mean, were very inspirational and influential for a lot of people. Even though that a lot of people don't really that you know sir Ar- uh, arthur conan doyle was also inspired by mystery novels when he was writing um sherlock holmes like wilkie collins the moonstone great or... great story by the way i haven't read that, but i'm i'm excited to um it's definitely on my list and another one is too is you have like uh, when i didn't i didn't know about this but uh um edgar Allan poe he wrote mystery stories uh mm-hmm. a detective called dupin
0: yeah, po, uh, and, yeah he does and and Poe finds his way into these stories too in an almost ironic fashion
1: yes it is especially especially so given uh, Holmes's uh takedown of of him of uh, Poe's Depan and Gaarro's Lecoq so yeah but that uh,
0: itself is kind of funny because Conan Doyle was a fan of Poe and his detective yeah. writing uh, yet his character because often you know we find that a character is ventriloquist uh, author. Is you know speaking through him, but in this case, uh, he disagrees with with his character's view, which is quite quite interesting that you know Doyle would create a character that doesn't just represent himself uh, ad nauseum, but does have these kind of polar in, or polar opposite kind of feelings. It's cool.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And one thing you'll too when you read up on, on Arthur Conan Doyle, and just to share this revelation, that was not his favorite creation, Sherlock Holmes. He was much more interested in writing his historical fiction, his oh, yeah, non-fiction, yeah. his military, his his, his the, the 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 Professor Challenger novels. He he, he preferred those stories and those no- novels, and he got kind of sick of doing Sherlock Holmes. But he made a good bit of money on it, and I think in I think in whole he used it. But I got a feeling, and it's deliberately portrayed, and I know that you know you mentioned how Sherlock Holmes comes off as a perfect kind of character in in this novel, and we'll get into that, but. I think in many ways, he made his Sherlock Holmes a very flawed character. And I think it was not a flawed character in the sense of written, but in the sense of just as a, as a human being. And I think a lot of modern interpretations pick up on the fact that, you know, people like Sherlock Holmes, even though we read them and we're amazed by their how, the narrative, how they put the narrative together in front of us that we don't see. At the same time, they give us foibles to counterbalance that kind of perfection, you know, that unbelievability factor
0: hmm And I, I, I agree with you. Um, in general, I don't have yet enough understanding of this character's evolution to comment, you know, on... on,
1: on of, of course. So we'll keep laughing another time. But yeah, I, I, I don't exactly.
0: want to read too much into it yet so that it yes. somehow skews my, my impression of what he does with his character.
1: Yes, and I also don't want to force that opinion to bias you in that way. I, I kind of want you to, to you know, to experience it, you know, pure, you know. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll refrain from that and just move on here and uh, go on to, you know, there was a cartoon series I recall as well. It was a really bad one, a French animation origin about Sherlock Holmes in the far future. And then, of course, much, much later, you know, after I was finished university and stuff, then we got the first Guy Ritchie film, Sherlock Holmes which is a very steampunkish comic book variation of the character and the world. And that kind of revigorated my interest in it on a visual level, I suppose, and an atmospheric level, you know, it's coolness to it. The sequel was a bit of too steampunkish in my opinion, and not very good. Um, That was just kind of my post university zeal for late Victorian Gothic horror, Alan Moore's from hell, the adaptation of that, that sort of stuff, you know, Um, then you can move on. And, uh, you have of course now Moffitt and Gaddis's Sherlock series on the BBC. You know, that was took that really took the revival, you know, on you know, every every half the female population in the world is now a Cumber bitch now, right? So I mean Is that what they're calling themselves? Is that's that, what they call themselves, man. That's what they call themselves. Really? Cumber bitch. Cumber bitches, yeah.
0: Wow, okay, right. Cool, I
1: guess. Yeah. It's I'll that have, Alan Rickman if kind if of fascination known. that they have for people who like to treat other people like garbage because they think they're smarter or have characters that seem that way.
0: Yeah, I don't get it. No. But yeah, there's a lot that I don't get. It's the Alan Rickman get, so. factor. Pardon? I said there's a lot that I don't get, so I, I guess it, uh, it only, only serves. still a better it. love
1: story than Twilight. That's all I have to say. Oh, Moving yeah. forward. He's, a he's gay in that too, isn't he? Well, it's hinted at. Yeah. Listen, before you As go, sexual would probably be a, a better interpretation. Okay, fine.
0: Before you go any further, um, <clears throat> just just stipulate, Josh, for our sake and for the sake of anyone listening, that your reading and uh, your reading experience of um, Sherlock Holmes, while bigger than mine, it isn't exhaustive. Like you haven't read all these stories, you haven't read all these no. novels, and so while while you will guide. My kind of first steps, if if you will, into and behind the scenes of some of the bigger points of Sherlock Holmes that I might miss. Um, you there's still an awful lot that you're you're going to discover yourself,
1: right? Oh, absolutely, yes. Just in reading the backstories and and, and you know and and seeing things for the first time, you know, like I've only re- read about maybe two or three Sherlock Holmes novels, and I've read a couple of the short stories. And that was a long time ago too, you know? And, yeah, but you, uh,
0: you do feel closer and you do own a closer relationship to the character than I do. Not just because you've read the, the books, as you're saying, but all these films and these TV shows and the A&E specials that you're citing, you've got a closer uh, relationship with them than I do. But I would just like to say on this, on this, uh, you know, particular platform before we go into plot summary information that the, the work that I've got um, the text that I have. I've got this this great Penguin Library uh, paperback that I'm going to use um, a collection, sorry, that I've got that I'm going to use to do my annotations and my reading. And then I've got this beautiful collection, three-volume collection of uh About those... the pictures. Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's, it's phenomenal. Edited by Leslie Klinger. It's the um, new annotated Sherlock Holmes from, I think it was 2006. I don't want to mm-hmm. say, I think it was 2006 or 2005 and I've got all three volumes so all of the work is there Um, I'm not going to do a lot of I'm not going to do any marking up in those books but I'm using those as encyclopedic references and let me tell you man they have given me all kinds of interesting insights but... I think they'll be best enjoyed when we get further into the series and I can then go back and make these references because already things are being, you know, like an, an annotation is bringing me up here. A footnote is telling me about a story that's coming and, you know, but I've learned all kinds of things from from reading this novel and then kind of cross-referencing some questions or things with, with this Klinger uh, Uh, Edition. It's it's phenomenal book and it's just a a beautiful collection of stories. So if if anybody's interested in them, uh, I got them on eBay, uh, brand new. But because they've been out for a while and I guess in private collections or whatever and not opened, you know, you can always find good stuff on eBay. I've got all three of them and it didn't cost me as much as it would
1: to buy them new. That's for sure. (laughs) That's yeah. I think I might pick them up someday myself. But, um, yeah, if you find any, like, anecdotes or any, like, little Easter eggs you're picking up, do point them out. And, you know, that, you know, any kind of a- – anything to make this as fresh as possible, you, you, you know, like, so we can smell the, the fresh tobacco and not the stale <laughs> tobacco. You know, I think that's the goal of, of this series is, is that yeah. we don't want to be stuffy. We don't want to be too too vernacular, but at the same time, we also want to – be, um, by the way, the day of the, the word of the day is now vernacular. I said that probably three times now, so no more will we hear the word vernacular unless I have it written down in one of my notes here.
0: Well, I, All I, right. I hear what you're saying. We, we want to do this right. And when we made the decision to do it, it was one of the first things I did was bought that because having done a little bit of research into it, I realized that that was really the leading authority on Holmes and Klinger's work is... Uh, is, is really stand out, and it's beautifully illustrated along the way. I mean, you want information on what the carriages were like in London and what the difference between a one-man horse carriage and a two-man horse carriage and the taxis. and I mean, it's all in or there. Or a growler. Or oh, a yeah, growler, exactly. I mean, it's is. all in there. So anyway, of course, yeah, I'm going to use that to educate myself and also to share that info with um, with you guys when and if I see that it's necessary, I guess. But no, we're not, we're not here to show off and to do anything like that. Uh, we're just here to celebrate... Hopefully, what will be a really exciting series to go through.
1: Yes, sir. So moving forward, you know, you know, it's the um, it's by this point, you know, there's all this circumstantial evidence that you know Holmes himself would probably dismiss with contempt as sentiment and bull roar. You know, is merely to ingrain in you, the listener there, and you, Scott, alias Bowman, that some part of our lives have featured Sherlock Holmes in our pop culture experience. Exactly. Yeah. So that's basically the gist of, I think, the cultural um, significance Sherlock Holmes for me and growing up and everything and, and how I got into the character. You know, I'm a big lover of noir and detective stories and whatnot. So Sherlock Holmes is part of that legacy. And so he seemed like a necessary thing to devour in that respect. And, and in much more detail now, full feast almost, I guess, is how, is how we're going to be doing this. Full feast, buddy. Feast or Famine. So let's begin with Arthur Conan Doyle himself. He was born at 11 P- Picardy Place in Edinburgh on May 22nd, n- 1859. He was uh, a fifth child of a 10-sibling family. His father, Charles, was the son of John Doyle, who was a famous car- political cartoonist of the era. So I think a lot oh, of the money shit.
0: that... This, I'm sorry, man, i got to interrupt you. Ten fucking kids? Like, I got one kid. And talk about, talk about women with no rights. Like
1: how, do but you how have... many of those kids live, though, right? That's yeah, the I know. Thing. I know.
0: Infant mortality rate was a lot different. But, I mean, it's not like Edinburgh's London. Do you know what I mean? London, it's not quite the same. And no. I oh, I don't know, man. Like, I love my daughter. She's awesome. But 10 kids? I mean, it, <laughs> the fifth of 10, too. Like, you, you, you just squat in the middle. Like, it's just as well he became a good writer. Because I'm sure mom and dad didn't have a lot of time for him.
1: <laughs> no. No. And his father was a bit of an alcoholic and an epileptic as well. Yeah, so, I read I mean, that. that it, w- it wasn't a pretty scene. No, definitely not. Um, interestingly enough, uh, he, 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 his last days were spent in Dumfries. Oh, is that right? Is he buried here? Uh, he might be. I don't know. He could be. He might even take him back to Edinburgh. I have no idea. Probably taken back to
0: Edinburgh. But, you know, that that's two cool things because obviously Robert Burns' mausoleum and, and family burial plots are all here. Um, Burns is, you know, a massive figure worldwide, poetry and song. And it's cool to think that Conan Doyle's got some connection here to Dumfries as
1: well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, he, like, he was born uh, a Catholic. Um, and what is a young man? He attended uh, school under, under the, the Jesuits at Hodder and Stonyhurst in Lancashire. After London matriculation, he heads to Austria, who does that sound like to you, Ian Fleming? Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, he to attend a Jesuit college, so he didn't get the ski instructing and uh, <laughs> hobnobbing with, uh, with, <laughs> with, with with super spies and and whatnot that uh, you know that Fleming did. But you know he he went to he went abroad, and but I think a lot of European men probably probably did this affluent ones. Affluent ones, yeah. Well, I, I guess because I'm trying to think of the subsistence. Because Charles uh, Doyle, his father, as I said, was a was a famous political cartoonist. So it's very possible that the father, being a drunk, could have been living off his father's glory, you know, and uh, and having the money to get a get, you know get a good you know to get a, a decent wife of proper you know s- you know blood, so to speak, and uh you know and, and take care of his ten his ten his ten piece brood, right? So yeah,
0: yeah.
1: So that's where I think they probably stayed a float, and so that gave you know some money for him to go to Jesuit College uh, and whatnot, and then of course to return um, to become a student of medicine at Edinburgh University um, after his studies in, in, uh, in, in this is in the eighteen early eighteen seventies. But
0: before you move away from his father for a minute uh, and, and take us on, I just want to like something I came across as I was doing reading. And I'm wondering if there's any truth to it because I couldn't find any information beyond a reference online that. Um, an early edition of a study in scarlet was actually illustrated by his father. Oh, really? That's I came across that fact, but I, I well stated as fact, but I don't know, I don't know if that's if that's true. But apparently, it was published in 1888. My notes here say, um, but I, I wasn't able to find one, uh, even like a you know a facsimile or, or a photo online of it. So it, that would be. Well, quite we should a cool get more thing. information on that
1: and and uh, research it for the next show and see if we can follow up on that. Because I I think, you know, the fact that, you know, that he deal with his father's alcoholism and his epilepsy for a long time, it must have been very strenuous relationship. But the fact that his father went ahead and did that in his later years, even, you know, and 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 did some of the artwork for his son in that respect shows that he must have got some of his of his of his own father's talent in there. That's right. You know, and and wanted to put it out. And that's a really nice little 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 tidbit there.
0: You say that he he died in Dumfries, right? Yes. Well, I'm wondering if if that would have been. If he died at the Crichton, the Crichton at the time was a mental. It, it was. It was the Crichton. It was the Crichton, right? Well, d- Josh, you've been there. That's uh, that's where we played ultimate frisbee about ten years ago.
1: Oh, oh ju- just outside of it, you mean?
0: Well, that that's the Crichton. Well, right now, the the Crichton University campus is there. Um, there are still mental health um, blocks up there, which are adjuncts to the hospital, um, the Crichton, the the infirmary, the Dumfries Royal Infirmary, but. That's, that was the site of the Crichton um, Hospital where we were. Wow. And that's where Conan Doyle's dad probably, well, yeah, d- died. If Expired, he, yeah. If wow. he was there as a mental patient, Ow. yeah. Anyway, there you go. So you've stood on the History ground.
1: History comes alive. It's History comes alive. And I've been to Edinburgh too. So, I mean, I was definitely in, there's something, you know, I cut, cut to my bones in this, you know, just a little bit. Hmm. So moving forward, um, He attends classes there under a famous physician, Joseph Bell, whose scientific reasoning and penchant for being a human calculator is a key inspiration for Doyle's famous creation, Sherlock Holmes. As for Watson, he is actually a biographical character based on Doyle's friend, another physician and former armor surgery, uh, surgeon. Sorry, surgery, surgeon. I guess, did they have a short term called surgies for surgeons? I have no idea. Um you Did you now? They do now. Um, My new world order. Look out, Trump.
0: (laughs) Oh, wait till we get to the publication segue! What a
1: terrible segue and a cheap ploy to put politicization in there. Terrible, terrible of me. Trump will come back into this. Yes, he will, of course. Donald will always make sure he comes back into into anything that that doesn't concern him. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, uh, former armor surgeon James Watson this was around 1876 and upwards. Um, when he clerked underneath Bell, he was also the teacher. Uh, who, Bell, he well, he also had some interaction with another student who was a famous, who was a teacher of another famous Scots writer. Bell, one of Bell's other students was Ro- Robert Louis Stevenson. Cool. You know, of uh, Treasure Island and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde fame and kidnap fame. Um after this uh, Arthur Conan Doyle he takes oh, incidentally
0: the incidentally sorry just before you go on uh, Louis Stevenson you want to know something cool about him there's a great book and I don't remember the title of it right now I should have well I didn't know you were going to make that connection which is really cool but there's a great book about uh the Stevenson family and of course the family he came from that Scottish family uh built tons of lighthouses and they were really lighthouse oriented family in turn lighthouse oriented family What the fuck does that mean <laughs> oh
1: no, they were like is like a nuclear family but powered by lighthouses <laughs> yeah.
0: no what it, what it means is that his descendants and ancestors and grandparents and whatnot uh built and and housed lighthouses okay like they they, they were well known for doing so and they were really really gifted in it and the the stevenson lighthouses is is, an, is a story i think that's what it's called it's a book, rather, about that, you know, it's non-fiction about uh, the family and lighthouses. It's really, really cool stuff. I don't remember who wrote it. I have read it. Um, I'll find out for you. But if you're interested in, in those kind of little connections to Scotland and other writers, that's a really cool story, where Robert Louis Stevenson comes from and his family's connection to lighthouses oh. and the ocean. Anyway, enough of that.
1: Just in general, one of the influences of, um, you know, well, of Sir Arthur J- Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of Car- Conan Doyle was. I'm sick i saying his whole name. It's going to be Conan Doyle from now on, um, or Doyle if I get lazy. Uh, other influences of Conan Doyle were Scottish writers like uh, the young, the, the the earlier works of Stevenson, but also um, Sir Walter Scott was also a big inspiration for Doyle, especially a lot of the historical stories and stuff that he wanted to tell and 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 whatnot. Uh, uh, so, so, there's a, definitely a strong connection to Scotland and its literature uh, to Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. When he was uh, under Bell in, in Edinburgh, he took assistantship, assistantships else, uh, afterwards, like in uh, across the UK, Sheffield, Birmingham, just to build up his experience as a physician. During this time, he publishes uh, a sh- his, first short, his first short story, uh, The Mystery of Sassassa Valley. And then he also published a medical journal publication um, regarding a type of flower that was used to eat for poisons or something to solve certain crimes. Kind of similar to, you know, that moment in a study in Scarlet where he comes up with some uh, miraculous way to, to trace hemoglobin in, in, in clothes and whatnot, right? Which is something nowadays in modern, I guess, CSI culture that's pretty obvious, but...
0: Well, 115 years ago, it might not have been. 130 years ago, it
1: wouldn't have been. I was wondering back then, though, was there any was there anything in the annotations about the discovery, of like of, of Holmes' Eureka mo- moment when Watson first discovers him, or or sorry, meets him at the uh, at St. Bart.
0: I'll have an answer for you by the time we get to our plot summary.
1: Exciting. So, um, after this publication of the mystery of Sassaf Valley as the and the medical journal publication. Um, he then submitted another story, he, uh, the Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe. <laughs> That's a bit of a mouthful there, but uh, so there's emanations of the future spirituality and Gothic horror that kind of permeates some of his work. Kind of, you know, maybe Hound of the Baskervilles being suggested here, perhaps. Um, in 1880, he serves as a surgeon on a Greenland whaling ship called Hope. Not to the whales, I guess. Yeah,
0: I wouldn't think so.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then studies a, uh, uh, and then after his studies, after you know t- being a surgeon there on that ship for a year or so, just uh, uh, he ends up uh, graduating with his MBCM CM at Edinburgh University. His first employment is a surgeon as uh, a surgeon on a steamer, the Mayumba, just off of West Africa which is followed by an ill-fated partnership soon afterwards in Plymouth uh, and then Southsea in Plymouth with uh, one of his friends that just fell apart completely. And then this leaves him and his family with his father, mother, and all the itinerants uh, at Southsea in Portsmouth. Uh, Charles, his alcoholism and his epilepsy getting worse and worse, begins to deteriorate. His mother ends up being cottaged as well um, in terms of just, you know, into senescence. uh, he ends up in Dumfries, as I mentioned, uh, passing away, and the family breaks apart. Uh, his brother becomes... His brother and his sisters separate. They become... I think his, one of his brothers became a doctor, and his wife, I think, went into nursing... Or, sorry, his sister, sorry, went into nursing. By this point, our Colonel Doyle was about 25, and he hadn't uh, he hadn't married yet. Uh, this has been... After the, the father's death and the disintegration of the family... You know, perhaps inspired by Poe's Dupin and Gabriel's Lecoq, uh, and maybe Wilkie Collins in there as well. Uh, he, I guess, to escape the stress of his life at the time, he begins writing *A Study in Scarlet* and um, and publishing other works too. Uh, before the publication of *Study in Scarlet*, the first Sherlock Holmes novel, um, it is important to note that one of his one of his prominent works, *The Captain of the Polestar, a, a short story I believe it was, or a novella at least. Um, was published before that and then of course in 1886 um, we have the publication of a study in scarlet in the beaton's christmas annual and that it everything just kind of took off from there
0: yeah i mean i'll say more about that when you know in a moment or two we talk about publication but yeah well done
1: Thank you. Thank you. I, I didn't want to go through his whole life, I think, just getting to set up to where we are at a point of study in Scarlet and kind of maybe just throwing out of, out of you know, bi- biographical references, I think, throughout, you know, to yes. build up, you know, what kind of state of mind he is when he's writing this book and mm-hmm. and this storyline and what he was doing at the same time. And could this have, it, you know, filtered into this? And I think it'll be an interesting examination by stretching out the biography of our author.
0: I think so, because we want to put the, we want to put the books in context and the publication history and the research that we do, looking into each episode and each story, might you know give us opportunities to shove some of that autobiographical autobiog- information through the chinks or the cracks, you know? Yes, sir. All right. Well, um, that that's that's cool, man. Like um, it, it's interesting to discover just by listening to you some of these connections that we can both kind of almost tangibly tangibly hold, but you know. Something I've learned since moving over here to Great Britain, uh, although, of course, you can't fucking use that term anymore because it upsets somebody. You can't say Britain. You can't say um, United Kingdom to some people. You can't say whatever because, you know, we want to leave Europe and we don't want England and we want nationalism in Scotland. It's it's such a, such a, ugh, I don't know, man. Nationalism frightens me. So anyway, I'm I'm, honestly, oh, yes. I'm on a soapbox, I guess. But what I mean is, I'm in Scotland right now at a very tumultuous time in terms of its view of itself, in terms of its view within England and Wales and uh, Northern Ireland as the United Kingdom, in terms of its relationship to Europe and how it doesn't want the Brexit. And, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here in 2017, the early time, the early stages of, that makes it weird to talk about. But one of the things that... I've really discovered about um, you know guys experiences like this. Reading a book, for example, is that everything at some point, and maybe maybe it's part of like this whole imperial uh, life that we as Canadians have had to kind of experience as a colony. But so many things are tangibly close when you're over here. Like within an hour or two's drive, you can you can see pretty much you know, the grades of all of the Scottish greats in terms of writing that maybe um, you've heard about in Canada or America, you know what I mean? You can, mm-hmm. within, a, within a short flight, get to the sites of some of these most incredibly uh, moving stories that y- you've read as a child or as a student or whatever. Like, things are so close over here. Canada is such a massive country that... You know, I, I don't know really where I'm going with this, but I enjoyed. Okay, I just enjoyed listening to what you were saying and, and discovering little connections to places that are close by, like Conan Doyle's dad dying here in the infirmary at Dum, or the the Crichton and Dumfries. And um, you may remember. Are you saying
1: that? Are you saying uh, Bowman in a way that you're you can see how the how in, in the most innocent ways nationalism can be, uh, spread, or I guess take root in in you know in the heart. Perhaps, maybe. Uh,
0: I, I I wasn't consciously talking about nationalism, but I suppose, yeah, in a roundabout way, maybe that's what I'm saying. But, um,
1: yeah, I don't know. Anyway, now speaking speaking of nationalism, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I mean, this is later context, but he was a pretty British, even though he was Scottish. He was a, a Brit, He was an imperialist for sure. I mean, yeah, he I supported the Boer, He supported he the Boer yeah. War. Yeah. I,
0: I'm I'm aware of that, and I think he and Ian Fleming in the early days would have got along just fine.
1: Oh, I'm sure they would have. I wonder if they've. I, I think no, I, I don't think he died like in the '26, I think or so. Yeah, uh, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have crossed paths. No, they wouldn't have crossed paths. No, he didn't run into the same at the same s- s- ski lodge. I guess. <laughs> I
0: don't. I don't think. I, no, I don't think that uh, he he went to Kits. What was it, Kitsbowl? Kitsbile. Kitsbile. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think he went there. Anyway, um, right. So you brought us up to the publication. You want me to say a few words about this?
1: Yeah, let's just let's uh, take a word in the publications, and uh, then we'll kind of like uh, co- contemplate, you know, those uh, as- those aspects, right. and then go from there.
0: All right, cool. Well, th- the novel was written when Conan Doyle was twenty-seven. Took him about three weeks to write this, and I mean, just stop and think about that, right? <laughs> But these are the days before distractions, before, you know, well, no, they're not the days before distractions, but they're definitely the days where uh, if you wanted to write, you could do it a hell of a lot easier, I think, than you could today. You know, you didn't have um, social media knocking at your door. You didn't have broadband and Wi-Fi and Netflix that was asking you to be, you know, on your couch watching it. You didn't have all kinds of other responsibilities in the fast, fast, click, click day of distraction that we now live in, so... I'm not saying that if I lived back then I'd be able to write a book in three weeks, but it sounds ridiculous that in three weeks he wrote this book. But I don't think three weeks back then, as a man trying to write a book, was is quite the same thing as three weeks today. Do you, do you know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. And this is also a literate man as well, who was raised who was raised you know in, in a family of of you know of in in terms of literacy. And again, he doesn't have the distractions that we have today, as you mentioned, social media. Uh, just the, this everyday life, uh, uh, just and, and 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 also too. I mean, this was a society where the man's life was was paramount. So I mean, the interest of the family and and whatnot, and I guess the women in the family in this case here too, you know, it created allowed an isolation. I think uh, for the for males to do these things on their own when they wanted to, and and I I just think you could make time easier to do things like this without having. All the different distractions, the variables of those distractions uh, getting in the way. Yeah, well, but three weeks is pretty impressive, I have to say. Of course, it but then again, is. this guy does this guy, but he has. Think of all two; they probably had this story in mind for a long time because he's already published a couple of books, uh, short stories already, and one novel. Secondly, um, he you know he had he's wrote medical papers, so he is a literate man. So this kind of story to him and he always kind of dismissed the Sherlock Holmes stories to the side as just like this he just had fun doing them you know so maybe it was just a, it's just something that just he just able to, to do at the top of his head you know uh, I, I can't make any more explanation than that
0: well no but I, I think it's interesting that later in his career when you know he kills Holmes twice doesn't he and then brings him back for the sake of his readers and for the sake of his his wallet um, I think that he <laughs> He has an interesting relationship with with this character, and I'm looking forward to learning more about that as we go along as well, because yes I don't think he liked uh, as well I mean he had fun writing Sherlock Holmes probably in the main, but I don't think that he always enjoyed what he was doing there. I think sometimes he felt as though he was just giving the masses what what, what, what would you know like what it would enable him to uh, to take you know a little boat trip you know or something
1: or do other projects and whatnot. one yeah absolutely.
0: Yeah. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> right, so at the age of 27, writes this book in about three weeks, and as you rightly say, there were probably sketches and plans and structures for this story pre-existing, and he did draw a lot from his own experience. You can see a lot of Watson in him, or sorry, perhaps a lot of him in Watson, particularly now, having listened to your dis- discussion about him. Uh, the way Watson starts the story is very much like how I can imagine him, uh,
1: the, the surgeon or, or right. physician, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly.
0: And the military leanings and stuff like that too. Um, it was published, as you already said, by Wardlock and Company in the Beaton's Christmas Annual of 1887. Now, I, I looked at a couple of different sources at this and was interested to learn. One said nine, another said eleven, and another said eleven. So I'm going to go with eleven. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good average.
0: Average it out. <laughs> Apparently, there are only 11 copies that are known to exist of this Christmas annual from 1887. So those that do exist are very valuable because the Beaton's Christmas Annual was like a lot of Christmas annuals, um, a publication that would contain stories and recipes and extended stories. I mean, as in the case of mm-hmm. this. But you know, you'd have your your folklore and your Christmas carols and you'd have your advertisements and and basically, different stories and um, tellings of the time. And in this case, the 1887 edition, for which apparently only eleven copies still exist. Um, <clears throat> I bet you they fetch a lot on eBay. Well, th- th- this is where I'm. W- what I'm going to say. Apparently, this has fetched upwards of four hundred thousand dollars in. Um, Auction. Sotheby's, an auction house that we know well from our bond series, in two thousand and ten put to auction and put a reserve on one of these eleven existing copies. and it was signed by Conan Doyle. And it didn't meet it didn't meet the reserve price. It went at auction for two hundred and forty thousand pounds, which in today's money is a, and today's money is crap, remember, because of our friggin recession. Um, but in today's money that's about 400,000 Canadian 300,000 American and it's like
1: like one of those rare comic books, it's almost the same price as that you'd think that would be worth more that's right, Like that's kind of what I was thinking like Like, Action Comics number one I think is worth more than that actually plus,
0: signed by Stan Lee like this is signed by the writer and I'm just wondering if because it's not like it's years and years and years ago. It's only 2010 this went at Sotheby's, which is a very reputable house for sale, as you know. And yes. I don't know. I just kind of thought the number didn't astound me that it went for 240,000 pounds. Like three million would have astounded me. But I, I kind of thought this would have fetched about a million pounds, to be honest. Like uh,
1: Yeah, that would be a fair fair, fair assumption, given you know, like the, the, the fame of the character and how old it is. and anyway. that, that, that is definitely a good estimation. I then but stu- in, I then in the stupidly, end, that wasn't the
0: reality. Well, not, no, indeed, it wasn't the reality. But I then, I then stupidly started my own internet search where I'm like, hey, I wonder if I can get like uh, something like that for about 100 pounds. And then, of course, I stopped quickly when I realized I couldn't afford anything similar. <laughs> but uh, the first American edition was published a couple years later, 1890, by J.B. Lippincott um, and company. That's an uh, unfortunate name, but anyway, I'll move on from that. Lippincott. <clears throat> yeah, uh, something...
1: it sounds like he had, he had some trouble with his, uh, with, uh, while putting the cot away or something like that.
0: Well, I would, yeah. You, you know,
1: like the like the bars of the cot maybe catching on his lip or something. That would really painful, you know.
0: You're you're more tasteful than I am, Josh. I was equating um, the sound of cot with something else, and I'm not going to spell that out for you, but. Was it cot or cock? <laughs> it was caught. but Okay. It just sounded different to me because I'm dirtier than you maybe. Um, anyway, look, right. I told you that Trump was going to find his way back in here. And he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't find his way back in here because he's here. He finds it because I'm thinking of this, right? Like, okay. Get this. In 2011, okay, the Albemarle County, Virginia – So, Albemarle County in Virginia, which, you'll know this, is where Thomas Jefferson lived most of his life. Yes. Banned studying Scarlet from its, get this, sixth grade reading list. Okay. I read. I
1: remember reading something about wow. this because of of the uh, Mormon. Uh, That's right. Yeah, yeah,
0: because of the because of the Mormon bashing, which is its own interesting story that we can go into later. Because Conan Doyle was kind of on the fence about whether he defended the Mormon. He said, "Actually, I didn't do anything wrong." And then apparently, according to the Mormons, he gave them private he gave them private apology letters later, but none of them can be found. I don't know. Anyway,
1: uh, yeah, he apparently he apologized to Brigham Young, I think, or something yeah, like that, or he was, or he was something able to like that.
0: But here's my yeah. question, here's my question to you, right? Like I read this, I'm 37 years old, I'm an English teacher. It wasn't hard going, but it wasn't easy going, for, to be honest. Like 6th graders in the United States can be fucking intelligent enough to read this book, but they represent a nation or a generation whose parents elected Donald Trump. <laughs> Like, I don't get this. I do, I do not get how a book like this can be on a sixth grader's reading list. A sixth grader, Josh, okay? You're ten yeah. fucking years old, man. You're ten years old. You can read this book at the age of ten and understand it and appreciate it, even be taught it, yet you represent a nation whose who, who's older generation think that a guy like Donald Trump is best option for a leader. Like, it's a paradox that baffles me, man. I don't get it.
1: They just don't want Hillary, man. They just didn't want Hillary.
0: I guess so. But anyway, I mean, I, you know... I And I also, a man. lot of the
1: people I, who I didn't want Trump in office, they didn't vote because they were too hipster to to, to, to vote. Yeah, too hipster to vote. Well, they're going
0: to suffer for it now, aren't they? Anyway. <laughs> they are.
1: Their apathy pretty much uh, bit him in the ass. But can you can you imagine that?
0: Like, th- this book... Okay, let, let's forget the... the that that Trump thing was was just my opinion, right? And that's
1: fine. Yeah, we'll like, move on. We'll move on from Dirty Donalds.
0: Yeah, yeah, but can you imagine this book being on a sixth grade reading list?
1: Not really. No, I mean the most complicated book, the most like adult book that I read when I was like a grade seven or 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 maybe eight was *A cue for Treason*, and that was like kind of a Shakespearean young adult story, and and I didn't read a, I didn't read Dickens until. I don't know. My first Dickens was until like grade eight, I think, or Oliver Twist, I think it was.
0: I didn't read that till grade ten. Mm. Um, anyway, it don't matter, right? Like if if someone who's ten years old can read this book and understand it, great. I'm mean, sure our parents probably could have, but I don't know. I wasn't reading this stuff when I was ten, and that's because I was that's because I was collecting Marvel cards and golfing and playing Nintendo. But exactly. But this is 2011. Remember, like you know, I'm talking about a time after our 10th birthdays, not too long ago. Apparently, now it's been moved to the 10th grade reading level. So probably
1: because it's probably because it's a it's a shorter story that a, a shorter novel, I guess. Case that they thought maybe it would just fit on the curriculum, you know. And it's the kids. Hey, it's Sherlock Holmes. People like that. you know people yeah, like sherlock maybe, holmes
0: maybe i mean structurally oh, it is very straightforward I mean, uh, we'll discuss this when we get to the investigation scoring but structurally this is not a tough book to read it is it's not a difficult no. book to read but its lexicon is not easy i don't think that this this story is is written in a way that it, or was really even intended for young people it's
1: well i mean i have i have here i have the oxford world classic version of *A study in scarlet paperback and, I mean, like, it's like the kind of book that you would get, you know, like in, in class. They would hand out in class, right? So a lot of these novels that they do on these curriculums, they have annotations and explanations. And the teachers will also go into them, too, because it's a good way to get it to introduce history to kids in, in, in that sense. And, you know, in Victorian society and whatnot. And so... Dude, you're talking to a guy... My great
0: You're talking to a guy who does this for a living. Like, I, I know. I, I just don't... I, I yeah. Just can't, I just can't see this being on a grade six reading list, but maybe Mm. I'm, okay, if I'm undervaluing the education of American children, then I've got to go back to Trump. I've got to go back there and say, why did you vote him? You know, do do you know what I'm saying? Like this, this, this book represents to me, at least a pretty sophisticated read and to read it and to appreciate it, even to absorb its teachings or absorb its language and its narrative. Would suggest something about the reader that I just don't see in in a nation of voters. Like I don't know, man. I can't figure it out.
1: I think it's. I could also be the sense too is that um, there's a lot of people in America who don't want that person in power, and there's a reason why. And I think it's those people now who are kind of like the the intellectual, like the Illuminati of that society. You know, not the Illuminati, wrong term. The literati. um, (laughs) they, They they. their All voices right, so are right. being heard louder and louder and louder, and there are educated people in America, and a very sophisticated society are. is there, yes, but what, un- what unfortunately What did Virginia it's... vote,
0: Josh? What did Virginia vote?
1: Now, are you talking about the Virginia schooling systems, or are you talking about the literary elite of Virginia, like the universities that are there, well, the or the university you know, society that any, is there? The universities versus...
0: have very little to do with the, s- the public school reading lists.
1: No, that's true, but, I mean, you could have a lot of, like... That school that you're talking about that banned the book is that a private school or is that a public school?
0: It's not a school. It's the entire. It's the entire county. Ah, uh, it's the entire county. Like, hmm. it's not a school. Hmm. And so I. I don't know. Whatever. It's Abermarl County, Virginia. Anyway, whatever. Whatever, man. Like it don't matter. You know, I worked with a <laughs> PE teacher over here from Virginia, and she was cool, but it don't. I just I just don't get it. Like, but you know what? America's always been like that. America, America took the the N word out of Huck Finn, right? And then they had a big media circus about it. They they've tried to ban books like The Color Purple because they don't think pe- America's got some weird things that they're you know they, they,
1: they like to ban shit a lot. It's the PC culture, and, and then it's the censure, and then, and then and then you have the uh, response, the the, the, the react, re- I guess the the reactive censorship culture at the same time, right? It's 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 yeah. just. And also, too, you got to think about is is that um, uh, I mean, you have the I mean, to go back to the whole Trump thing, the electrical co- colleges, and a lot of the people that got the majority of the votes in were people um, uh, you know that were not hacked by Russia. Um, <laughs> you know, the where people, you know, where the where the workers, the people in, in the rural areas and not in the urban centers, you know, and even though Virginia, you know, is kind of like it's not in the south per se, but it is very close to Washington, D.C. and are close to the eastern seaboard. So, uh, you know, like I, I just got to just as a whole, I mean that was probably on the on the curriculum set by people who would probably not vote for Trump, but now I guarantee you those people on the school boards who did put that on the syllabus, who probably thought the kids could take it, that they had good students there, they're probably demoted or fired or something like that, and then they have a bunch of, I don't know, Jesuits running the school now or something along those lines. Or whatever yeah. the ev- el- evangelical equivalent of Jesuits running those schools.
0: Hey man, whatever. I mean, that's. You, yeah, you're right. And I'm sorry for taking us down that route. But it just really surprised me. And it, maybe it's not that surprising, given the United States' track record for banning books and for, for its its attitude to things and, and trying to make media headlines as well. Like, maybe it's not really that strange. But I, I was certainly surprised by it. And I guess the Trump connection is uh, is my is opinion, really. It's, it's conjecture. Um and realistically, um, as you and I have said behind the scenes, I'm not surprised that United States has got a celebrity in office right now because it seems like the natural extension from a society that doesn't understand itself outside of celebrity culture.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Moving forward, though, from the um, you know the whole debacle you were saying about you know the publication how it was banned and the study in Scarlet and whatnot for bashing the Mormons and. I think we'll get into when we talk about I think in in the investigation as the, AKA the narrative side of things is that is the whole Mormon backstory in a study in Scarlet and Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, feelings towards the Mormons and the apologies you know that he made so I think that will be interesting to explore further.
0: It will yes and uh, it's a good thing you brought me back on track because that was far too long of an. Uh... Far too long that's something that, that's. I,
1: I'm gonna say that's like something that I would have done on on one of the, or uh, one of our earlier pro, pro programs. You know, <laughs> that's yeah, like uh, that that was a Josh level. Uh, what was the word uh, digression?
0: No, it wasn't. Okay, look, like, dude, I love you, but that wasn't okay. a, that was not a Josh okay. level. That was like you're,
1: you're you're willing to take your lumps, but not that much, eh? That's
0: correct. Josh level <laughs> digressions lead me like normally 25 to 30 minutes off track. But like a good Indian oral movies. narrative, you find your way back again.
1: Exactly. Follow the path. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Look, that's uh, that's publication. I don't have a lot more, more to say about it. Only that ever since um, the American edition in 1890 was published by J.B. Lippincott and Company, um, the, text, <laughs> the text has never been out of print.
1: Wow well that, that's uh, except, uh, yeah that's that, that, that's uh, impressive, but I mean makes sense if you think about it.
0: yeah, of course it does. I mean it hasn't been out of print that I could have discovered well, anyway. Was there I,
1: anything I about like Bowman the numbers that was that were No
0: no and sold I did, I wasn't how many one. copies
1: of the, B, of the Beatons? Nope no, I, I guess I that would probably be pretty not no longer extant, that information.
0: No, I wasn't able to find anything about the saleship of the original uh, publication. Uh, I'm sure it exists somewhere, but I, I didn't um, really What about it. the American
1: reception to the character? Uh, I mean, I'm curious to see. Middling. Oh, that was the... Middling, because, Mid- you know, what do Americans care about when they have James Fenimore Cooper and Harriet Beecher Stowe and all that, right? So. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't
0: celebrated immediately in Britain either it was you know the no. sherlock holmes character it wasn't like a big explosive firework that just took off like it it was it was accepted and respected and enjoyed but there was as you said earlier already there was a lot of competition out there in this type of writing he wasn't the first and um, there was
1: stevenson for one and then yeah, you also so, have like you probably still have you know the the other victorian novelists from early to late you know Austin, uh, the brontes uh, then you also have, like, Robert Louis Stevenson, Wilkie Collins, um, maybe even some American literature being more popular at the time, Victorian poetry like Tennyson. So, I mean, there was definitely a lot of – and also, like, all the little penny dreadfuls too, right? Like those little horror stories and they published in little magazines that you could buy, like, in uh, – you know, at newsstands and stuff like that. So there was a lot of competition and it, it probably took a little while to build a um, – a what's the word? A uh, – cult status, I guess you call it. Yeah, yeah. All right.
0: And that little tune means it's time for you to take over. Again.
1: All right. A study in Scarlet is told through the viewpoint of John Watson. Watson is a military surgeon who has recently served a tour of duty in Afghanistan. After being wounded in the shoulder, he is put out of action, and while recovering, he then developed enteric fever, not a very good going. Recovering and finally con- blessing in England, Watson is looking for a physician's work in London. But he needs a flatmate. Enter his old friend Stamford, a surgery dresser from the old days, now working at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. Stamford introduces him to Sherlock Holmes, who is also looking for a flatmate. At the chemistry lab at St. Bart's, the two agree to see the apartment at, uh, at, insert ominous noise and close up here, 221B Baker Street. <laughs> While attending to their negotiation of, of their living arrangements and the habits of the flat, Watson learns that Sherlock is a consulting detective and a master of deduction. This he learns from reading one of his scientific journals, so to speak. Even though Watson sort of disagrees with it. Through the arrival of a Scotland Yard messenger, Watson, the consulting detective vocation, um, he figures out is driven home here. There has been a murder in Brixton outside of Loriston Gardens. Watson is inviting to come along is invited to come along, and at their arrival we find Scotland Yard inspectors Lestrade and Gregson. The victim is a middle-aged American Enoch Drebber. Holmes whips out the magnifying glass and does his thing. Checking the body and its vicinity, as well as the back of the house and the gate, the tracks in the mud from a cab, etc. On his investigation of Drebber's corpse, a golden ring is found. This is important. Dun-dun-dun. Drebber, he's traced back to Madame Charpentier's boarding house, where he has lodged with the secretary another American named Joseph Standerson. Holmes, already putting things together, places an ad for the golden ring as a recent interview with a constable who discovered Drebber's corpse has provoked his suspicions. He also has ominous music sent a telegram to America believing that they will be dealing with the perp very soon and that the perp is desperate enough to come back for the ring Holmes and Watson prepare themselves for the encounter Watson has his bullpup pistol raring to go while Holmes heads to a concert (laughs) alas the perp doesn't show by the time he gets back but plot twist an old lady appears at the door and requests for her daughter's golden ring no way connected to anything going on right now of course uh Basically, um, Holmes appears pretty nonplussed about all this and goes all follow that cab when the old crone hops into a hansom. But her place of departure is no way connected to what's going on vis a vis her daughter and her husband. Yet, Holmes' next move is to hire a group of tasks that obviously has nothing to do with the last director, uh, detective inspector, I should say. Gregson arrives with virtually a shit-eating grin, believing he has outdone Lestrade and Holmes. He has a suspect, you see, one Arthur Charpentier, the son of Madame Charpentier, manager of the boarding house where Drebber and Sanderson have been lodged. It seems Drebber falls under the asshole victim category, and then some, as we will (laughs) learn, for he has been making some licentious overtures to Charpentier's daughter, Alice. Interviewing Alice and Madame Charpentier after getting to that residence by a lead, uh. Gregson hears of the altercation between young Arthur and Drebber in regard to the latter's unwanted advances on his sister. Gregson feels that the protection of his sister's honor and the mere convenience of the circumstances that Arthur is the killer. But just on on but just as Gregson rolls over like a pig in shit, Lestrade shows up blowing that theory out the window when he reports that he has found Standerson at the Halliday private motel, dead, stabbed. Gregson is surprisingly humbled about the whole situation while Holmes stands there knowing everything. Enter the older boy, Wiggins, the street urchin, who gives Sherlock a message. The cabbie is here. Cabbie is invited upstairs. Where is Sherlock going now? Cabbie appears and Holmes clamps on the irons. What? Insert epic backstory of the founding of Salt Lake City (laughs) and motive for the murders here. John Ferrier and a young girl, Lucy, are the only survivors of a band of settlers starving to death on the Alkali Flats of Utah. But lo and behold, the cavalry is here. For here come Brigham Young leading the Mormons like Israelites from Egypt into the Salt Flats. Can I interrupt you here? Pardon?
0: Can I interrupt you here? I just think that when you've introduced uh, Brigham Young and the Mormons, I've got something that might really help, uh, what, lighten? Or no, not not, not lighten, but uh, accent your introduction to them.
1: I'd be grateful for anything to accent.
0: Well, I give you the Mormon Tabernacle Choir with Climb Every Mountain.
1: That's like a song, Tolkien would have wrote for his hobbits. (laughs) The road goes ever on and
0: on. Alright, so it's a little irreverent, but I don't think that it's that out of place with the beginning of the second part, where the uh, introduction to the saints and and all the Mormon um, nomads are kind of finding their
1: promised land, you know? Yeah, nope, that works very well, actually, and uh, yeah, it definitely uh, makes uh, things a lot uh, bigger and more epic, so thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, Continue, please. Yeah, of course, of course. So, moving forward, uh, being good Mormons and all, they can shelter and water to Lucy and John Ferrier. Ferrier is allowed to become part of the society we learn. He goes to Temple, he, builds, he helps build Salt Lake City into the great Mormon conclave that it is. Secretly, Lucy is adopted as – secretly, my apologies – <laughs> he despises the many wives aspect of the Mormons. He's a man of great compromise uh, in this situation, very conflicted because he's grateful to these people, but at the same time, there are parts of their religion that he finds questionable. I myself would find the idea of a fiery salamander being the prophet of, of or the sign of God or whatever <laughs> kind of questionable myself, but that's just me. Or why this guy Joseph Smith all of a sudden had an angel appear at them, giving them plates out of nowhere in the middle of the 19th century. Also questionable. <laughs> But you know, then there's Tom Cruise, so That's right. We're not here knows? we're not here to debunk
0: or debase any religious
1: practice or faith. Not at all. Not at all.
0: If it happens along the way, then you know, that's just a bonus.
1: Yeah. Just the kooky ones. Just the cookie ones. Of course, yes. The straight lace. Also, you know, also the ones that seem to also the ones that seem to have a history of uh polygamy and uh child brides, you know, so that's you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't
0: feel as bad making fun of the Mormons. Uh, I know I should. It's not, you know, uh, it's not good of a moral man. It's not good of a Christian. But uh, nevertheless, here I am.
1: Yeah, I guess only the the South Park cre- creators have the right to do that. I suppose. I
0: suppose so. Yeah.
1: Anyway, moving forward, uh, Brigham Young um, and Co. They're not so much men of compromise, <laughs> to no. say the least. Um, with them, it's a way, it's their way or it's the highway. Uh, Lucy is adopted as John's daughter and becomes the prettiest girl in all the land. Once she has come of age, the, the Council of Four, who lead the Mormons, want to make Lucy one of their own by making her one of the wives of their sons. Meanwhile, Lucy is having a courtly romance with a Comstock prospector journeyman named Jefferson Hope. Hope is aware of the overtures being made, but he has to work. Brigham Young shows up and asks Farrier to make Lucy choose a husband and gives a very not-veiled threat to the man he sheltered and saved. Farrier, again conflicted, keeps stalling, but Drebber and Standerson, their sons, uh, aha, yes, those same characters, show up vying for her hand and are not very polite about it, nor what will happen if John doesn't comply. He's got 30 days. Someone even trolls him, writing down the number of remaining days, but all Ferry can do is hope for the Jefferson Hope, get it? to return in time. They barely make it out when Hope returns. Get it? The very last day, actually, using stealth to get the mountains. But dumbass Jefferson gets lost in the mountains while hunting. He finds Lucy Taken and John Underground. Good going. And I don't mean, like, the underground, like, you know, like, in some secret society of tunnels or whatever underneath the mountains of the Sierra Nevada. I'm talking about dead. Yeah, pushing up daisies. Pushing up daisies, exactly. That's courtesy of Standerson, we soon learn. He makes his way back to Salt Lake, but it is so, but it's so, so late. Within a month, Lucy is wed to Drebber and then dead by the end of that month. Courtesy of, of weakening of the spirits, uh, whatever he might have done to her, who knows. Devastated, he romantically breaks into her place of rest inside the Drebber home and steals her golden wedding band. Then he stalks Sanderson and Drebber into near madness, up to the moment where the Mormon social structure kind of implodes, and they have no real. And Sanderson and uh, Drebber re- are revealed to have no faith to begin with. To be honest, yep, they're just rapist asshole dickheads per- pursuing other fortunes outside of Salt Lake this time. So Drebber uh, is, is traced with Standerson, as is now his secretary, no longer on equal level. Uh, he's traces the uh, hope traces them to Cleveland, where they escape from his wrath into Europe. So now, returning to our regular scheduled program, after that not commercial break, we're now in the present day, and Jefferson Holmes confirms all that Holmes knew all along: the murder of Standerson and Drebber, how he did it. It was all for love and revenge. And he didn't care because he had an aneurysm that was going to burst anyway. So you know what? Um, he's more so a hero of the story than a villain of the story, to be honest. But you know, it's a it's the grandest of tales for the grandest of detectives, and it's a good
0: place to start, isn't it? It's um, it's a good plot summary, concise, uh, and I think. Interestingly enough, you know, we get this um, this theme that runs through it of uh, kind of bleeding hearts or broken hearts or, or <laughs> I don't know what, but hearts. You know, and love is obviously a, a not so subtle theme here in this one.
1: As overall s- uh, theme in the story, yes, I agree with that.
0: Yeah, it's um, kind of hitting us over the head a bit. Well, okay, good, cool, man. That's um, that's us done the uh, the plot summary. So congratulations. Your first plot summary
1: on our Sherlock Holmes series is now completed. Thank you, thank you. That went through a couple of the drafts, but I think we got... <laughs> Sorry, man.
0: I, I bookend your plot summaries with this beautiful music, so you just got
1: to be ready for it. I'll, next time I'll be ready for it. I'll know when to <laughs> wait for the, uh, the cue.
0: Yes, if today's taught us anything, folks, it's that it's all about learning um, and all about growing pains these first episodes.
1: I think we're doing pretty good so far. We're building up to something. Of course we are.
0: Um, Well, we've reached now the point where um, we're really going to get into the story itself. Uh, This is, of course, the moment where the BFG and I sit back, put our feet up, and light our pipes The blend of tobacco we're going to be puffing away at here is very much of a, uh, a Baker Street flavor, you could say, but each episode will have a different taste, and this one, of course, connects to a study in Scarlet. But more than just Lighting the Pipes being a convenient title for the show... We're also trying to reclaim the image because more modern incarnations of Sherlock Holmes have done away with the tobacco smoking. And while neither Josh nor myself are a tobacco smoker, it is uh, an image that we think deserves a little bit more recognition now in today's world. Would you agree, Josh, that uh, we we should bring back the pipe?
1: Here, 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 here. <laughs> I guess, would, would the uh, elect, electronic cigarettes or, or, or vapes, would, would that be the equivalent of the pipe nowadays, I suppose?
0: I don't know. I, th- I mean, there are still people that smoke pipes, surely.
1: Not to outrage anyone, but I do, I do love that comment in uh, True Detective Season 2 by Colin Farrell's character, where he says, because I think Rachel McAdams is in the car and she's having one of those electronic pipes with her. And he's like, that's like sucking a robot's dick. <laughs> I just thought that was great, and it seems like uh, Colin Farrell's character, being a detective in his own kind of way, would have probably preferred a pipe, you know?
0: Uh, Well, that that would be one of the, um, that would probably be the only memorable moment from the second series. Not a great show, (laughs) in my personal opinion, but then again, who am I? I'm not a millionaire Hollywood producer.
1: Uh, Second season is uh, kind of a mess, but that's another story altogether.
0: A totally another story altogether. Too bad that wasn't lost in the Utah desert. Too bad. Only Vince Vaughn. Yeah, that's right. Only he was left there. Anyway. Spoiler. Right. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler, yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, look. Um, lighting the pipes. Uh, do you want to quickly go through that acronym one more time? I don't even know so, if it's necessary,
1: but go ahead. Just quick. Uh, you know what? you got to get used to it, right? That's so right. P is for principles, i.e. the dynamic duo Holmes and Watson. I is the investigation the narrative, the clues, the story, the, the, the I guess, the buildup towards that and how it's written, the style in which it's written, how what we think of that style and what we think of those clues. Are they arbitrary? Are they naturalistic? Do they feel credulous or incredulous? Um, thirdly, P, once again. Perpetrator. 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 How do you Thank forget you. that? How do you forget that? I got it. It, 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 it's, it's, it's the, it, it was perp, I remember, but perpetrator is just like two more extra syllables. Moving forward, though, perpet, uh the perpetrator is just, you know, the antagonist, uh, the main suspect, uh, whatever his motivations. Do we buy his motivations? Is he is he compelling? Does he drive the narrative? Is he a good villain? Is really in, in, in the end of it all. And for and uh second last, we have environs so these are our locales these are our locations uh, the atmosphere uh, the feeling that these locales bring to the story um, how what it brings to the narrative uh, how it how we feel about it how just more and more how location and setting shape uh the maison of the story to use a, a filmic term finally we have supporting players exactly the supporting players so we deal <laughs> yeah, with exactly. uh all this is intentional just to uh, oh, kind I of
0: yeah.
1: just i'm just trying to provoke a, a, a sort of an annoyance here um but going further yeah the supporting players so these are our suspects uh our possible suspects these are our witnesses these are our detective inspectors these are the mrs hudson's these are the urchin street gangs all of the characters that we encounter within Sherlock Holmes' world. Okay. And in particular, the story we're reading. And in particular, the story we're reading, yes.
0: Good. Okay. Well, um, let's start then with principles. Um, this will be our way to get into talking about the narrative. And I think that, you know, much like the first episode of our Bond series, this is going to be a little longer than expected. Uh, but next time out, we'll get more of the text and less of the intro. And I think that'll help evolve our conversations quite nicely.
1: Yes, indeed. All right. I think I, I think you're you're right you're right on that Bowman. I think that uh, now that we got the first story out of the way and the introductions and the uh, this the setups, I think we're going to see the characters flow in perhaps in a more naturalistic fashion in the uh, in, in the next couple of narratives.
0: Right. Well. Um... What do you think? What did you make of Holmes and Watson here? Uh, You were familiar with them in this story before I was. Um, You want to start off with this?
1: Holmes is brilliant. Narrow interests, of course. Um, Very much ahead of everyone in terms of thinking and how he views situations. He's making these connections, and we, the audience, and Watson are trying to keep up. He is friendly, uh, not introverted, but he is preoccupied. He is not rude, but he is slightly condescending, and if he is sarcastic or being deliberately ironic, he hides it with the straight face of a master actor. He's fascinating, um, and he is a great creation, but so far it's only a sketch of how Watson perceives him so far. So we get get kind of his subjective, somewhat objective portrayal of, of Holmes. It's a little distant for us, a little bit, but... I think if you read back some chapters afterwards and and you kind of make connections after thinking about it, the actions of the characters actually flow quite well. I think it's one of the frustrations of stories or the mysteries genre in general is is that while you're reading the storyline, it's so easy to miss little details. And then afterwards, part of the enjoyment, I guess, is going back and finding the clues. And maybe that's what makes these stories uh, re, you know, uh, this allows them to be reread again several times. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: perhaps um, to see how the foreshadowing was implemented by the writer and and if that worked or if it didn't work, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. But we must we must say that the character is also important. And even though, yes, it might be brilliant these layered clues that you're leaving in there and whatnot, or how a character acts and know and how his his actions finally make responsible in the end when you're kind of utterly confused or, or confounded by them midway as if we were some Lestrade or Gregson, uh, that, it is good to have some coherence, I think, in, in kind of figuring that something is going on. And I think the portrayal of Holmes in here, it's, en- it's enigmatic, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's a little bit of missing of a, of a heart, I think, of the character that we don't quite get yet. So we're only seeing that through the perspective of others, and uh, I hope that um, we we get a more intimate view down the road.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't get uh, Watson early on makes a list of his idiosyncratic uh, nature and you know, or sorry, a list of features from that nature and kind of. I love that. His yeah. Limits. Yeah. I mean, knowledge of literature nil. Knowledge of philosophy nil. Knowledge of astronomy nil. As you said earlier, he didn't. You know, he was ignorant of the Copernican theory,
1: of uh, you know. Anyway. Uh, knowledge of politics, feeble. He had, the no- best, he had the best explanation for rejecting it, though. That's kind of the brilliant part of it. Right? He did, yeah. Like, so what if, like, who cares who the Prime Minister of England is? Who cares that the, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth? That doesn't affect the here and now or in the environs in which he's investigating what he's doing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and if he needs to expand his knowledge, when that knowledge becomes necessary, then he'll acquire it, right? So- That's right. He, he says that
0: it's unnecessary information, that a, a man's brain is like an empty attic, and you need to stock it with... With furniture, what is it? He says furniture that that you know is suitable and only necessary.
1: Like, you know. yeah, like the, the mind shouldn't be elastic. I believe he says. I, mm-hmm. I kind of like that metaphor. Is that it shouldn't stretch and bound, or it gets confounded? You know, it should always just have the perfect. I guess everything should be in one, should be contained in a perfect um, container. I guess would be the way to describe it yeah and that the tools within the
0: brain should be accessible not sort of covered over with crap in a garage that you can't access them um anyway getting back to the list of um limits that uh watson notes on holmes's uh person knowledge of geography uh practical but limited Uh, knowledge of chemistry profound knowledge of anatomy accurate but unsystematic Knowledge of sensational literature immense. He appears to know every detail of every horror perpetrated in the century. Knowledge of botany is variable. Um, he plays the violin well. is an expert single stick player, boxer, and swordsman, and has a good practical knowledge of the British law.
1: Because he needs that, right? All those skills that you list that he's good at are things that he needs in order for, in his profession as a consulting detective. Well, not and... sure a swordsman is necessary in that capacity, but. Well, I mean if you get the situations where he's investigating you know and whatnot uh, knowing those things is helpful I suppose if you run into certain people yeah, I guess so I guess so.
0: Anyway I, I like the um, I like I like the first meeting in the uh, in the laboratory. You asked earlier whether um, my edition of the book had uh, any annotations that would explain whether there was medical truth to what he had discovered as this sort of um, this ability to test uh, not test but to detect blood types and stuff like that through crystallization and uh, it's interesting one of uh, there's a couple of different notes there one saying that it could have been something that led to a discovery of its time and another saying that it was very unlikely uh, given given the fact that it was never credited to Conan Doyle who was a doctor very unlikely (laughs) that it was anything pardon me anything more than just an extension of medical science into fiction you know
1: yeah, and also going back, too, I mentioned that uh, before he published um, – after he published his um, his first story, actually, The um, the Mystery of Sasa Valley, he then published a nonfiction work called Gelsiminum as a Poison <laughs> in the British Medical Journal, 20th September, 1879. Hmm. So that just seemed to kind of like that whole thing you mentioned uh, when I read that, that he published a, a, a publication like that, Conan Doyle. That reminded me of of, of Holmes's discovery of the hemoglobin in, in of, of dried blood, right? And yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. how you could detect it and use it in law enforcement and whatnot. So
0: I I do like the way that Holmes is written here, and like I, I like that Conan Doyle is playing to his strengths, and he's using stuff he knows in the writing of his characters' detection, like like knowing that the blood next to uh a, an injureless body, so to speak, if he suspected poison, then the blood must have come from someone else, and then he. He presumed from the height measurements and whatnot that it was a nosebleed and they were looking for a man with a, you know, red or a swollen, um, a ruddy looking complexion. And I mean, I thought
1: that was all pretty clever stuff. I did enjoy Uh, that. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like early medical forensics if you think about it, you know. I think that's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah, it's what it is because nowadays the most uh, advanced types of crime solving is like the CI effect. Well, not the CSI effect, but actual forensic medicine. And uh, how they determine, you know, like blood spatter and, and arterial spray and that sort of stuff, you know, like it's, it's, it's those little angles and stuff that people like Lestrade and Gregson who are just simply trained into get the collar, get the perp, make get, make the politicians happy, you know, whereas these guys just want to get they want to capture their man. They want to make sure that who had done it gets gets caught. And uh, that's what Holmes seems to be all about. He has his own sense of justice that way.
0: And on the day that they go to do this case together, Holmes and Watson, um, or Holmes is reading this book called The Book of Life, which is almost like something <laughs> that will allow him to detect lying in other people and read minds. And so there is there is this real curious bent to fill his brain with things that will be useful and to never stop doing that, but to always organize them in, in, in like a filing cabinet of skill, you know?
1: Absolutely, yes. I like how it's called the Book of Light. It just seemed like something the Mormons <laughs> yeah. would have wrote, you know what yes. I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, that's pretty cool. Look, I, I want to I wanna read a little bit, uh, if I can, um, which I yeah. think feeds into our principles a little bit. Um, what section are we going to? I, I'm, I'm here pretty pretty early on, actually, just chapter two, um, the science of deduction, where we're getting an explanation from Holmes' own mouth, where he explains his occupation. Well, I I have a trade of my own. I suppose I'm the only one in the world. I'm a consulting detective, if you can understand what that is. Here in London, we have lots of government detectives and lots of private ones. When these fellows are at fault, they come to me, and I manage to put them on the right scent. They lay all the evidence before me, and I'm generally able, by the help of my knowledge of the history of crime, to set them straight. There's a strong family resemblance about misdeeds, and if you have all the details of a thousand at your finger ends, it is odd if you can't unravel the thousand and first... Lestrade is a well-known detective. He got himself into a fog recently over a forgery case, and that was what brought him here. And these other people? Watson asked. They're mostly sent on by private inquiry agents, agencies. They're all people who are in trouble about something and want a little enlightenment. I listen to their story, they listen to my comments, and then I pocket my fee. But do you mean to say, said Watson, er, <clears throat> yeah, Watson that without leaving your room, you can unravel some knot which other men can make nothing of, although they've seen every detail for themselves. Quite so. I have a kind of intuition that way. So that, I think, is probably the best way to explain how Holmes
1: views himself. I'm very curious to see how Conan Doyle describes, you know, how this man decided to become the way that he was, and what drives him to do what he does. Is simply, Does he simply want to... Um... How do I put it? Solve cases for the sake of solving them because it is a challenge, or it's just some frivolous mm-hmm. thing for him to do, or be, or is it simply like you know what drives him? I think is what I'm really curious of, and yes. that was the, the one thing that I that I found was missing in the story is what drives him. He was it was just I guess this is your first encounter of him, and who is this enigmatic man who is just like this confounding mystery of the police to have a blood on the on the wall, no blood on the body the guy lying on the ground uh, poisoned or something there's a gold ring there's uh americans in town there's political situation going on with american immigrants and the hostility towards that <laughs> that's not topical at all no, and uh not at all <laughs> you know like there's all these little factors that people like lestrade and gregson because they play they have to play the rules and go by the way that they've done and been trained that you kind of feel sorry for them in the sense of or being around like holmes but also you can see how much Holmes is necessary and how I find he is kind of a credulous character more so than a superhuman character uh, as a narrative as some people might portray him, you know?
0: Yes, I agree with you. Um, Holmes is necessary. He's, he's the obvious standout in this story as well. Uh, it, it is the first story, so we don't get an origin. We don't really get a backstory as such. Watson is reacting the whole time, and um, like the reader, he responds to Holmes's well, I guess see he's a rather febrile character at times, bit feverish and idiosyncratic, as we've already said. But you know the the formula of the book, and it's quite simple. And I don't know if this is going to continue or not, but we are Watson and Holmes is, yes, is Doyle. Doyle has all the answers. and and part of the part of the thing that I don't like about the story, and I'm not sure I'm going to like so much about all of them, but maybe it'll, you know, I'll be surprised or changed a bit, is that, I just feel or, like numbed, kind of... or simply just
1: numbed and, accept, and, and accepting yes. of it who knows that's right and
0: you know i did appreciate a lot of parts of this story even though this was a bit i didn't like it formulaic in the sense that you're just waiting for conan doyle to tell you what happens like and you're waiting like the whole time holmes knows what's going on and he has already made his you know his guesses and stuff and they all happen behind the curtain so to speak and we're just kinda waiting for him to give us the big reveal and I I do find that kind of dull particularly when we're forced into Watson's uh, perspective through the first person and we we just kind of have to sit by and be impressed by Holmes and one of the things that kinda connecting to what you're saying is going to be interesting is you know how long can you sustain that as a mode of narrative telling as a mode of characterization Um, there's no change for Sherlock Holmes as a character in this story. We follow him, but he does not yeah. change. He, he starts and stops in the same place. There's no, there's no arc for his character. He is only stumped at the end of this by who did Jefferson Hope find and convinced to go try to pick up the ring. That's the thing that he doesn't understand. And Jefferson Hope frustrates him by not telling him really. He just says, Oh, I don't tell all my friends that way. And that's kind of cool because that's the only thing that Holmes doesn't really figure out. So getting back to yes. what, getting back to what you were saying, it'll be interesting to see if we learn more about what motivates him and what makes him tick and how the conflicts within his own mind and his own history maybe play out because if he already knows the solution to a lot of these things and if, if we're just going to follow him solve crimes, he's going to have them done quickly, uh, perhaps. It seems at least we're being set up to follow a character who is Going to be on or a few steps ahead of the reader all the time, and if, yes. that's, the, if that's the case, it's going to become boring uh, unless we get some history, some backstory, some something more, um, something a little bit more interesting than just oh, wait for it, wait for it, ta
1: da, here it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, one, 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 100 percent, and I also feel too that I think. Down, I think if you think of this as a serial more so than like a one story, even though it was just Scarlet easily could have simply just been a short story. But apparently so many people loved, loved it. Uh, it had a good response and they wanted him to do more of it uh, back in England. So he had to continue, you know, he continued with the characters and he continued with the story and stuff. And I, I, I'm hoping along the way that we get like we still get kind of the same kind of like a uh, super cool. To, You know detective work that he's doing you know and kind of the enigmatic presence remaining but at the same time give us little tidbits you know of certain characterizations and and subtly layer them in you know that's what i'm looking for and looking forward to peel apart as we go along
0: i'm with you and i like i like the fact that he goes off to the concert like that that's a cool little character thing that can make me and help me score him away from the normal uh ski run of his development you know what i mean like he, he yeah. goes off piste a little bit and he does this or he does that. And the way he handles the constable with the, the gold coin that he's kind of luring him into giving him evidence. Like I like these little character points. And yeah. those are the things that add dimension to what so far and certainly is being set up to be a very um, predictable way to follow him around the story. So, I mean, for my part, as a starting point, um, I gave the principals 3.5 out of 5 because – yeah, it was enjoyable to follow them. I like his, I like his behaviors. Um, I, I like his oddness. I like Watson, but so far Watson has just been reacting to everything. He hasn't contributed yes. much. We haven't got. Like much he's, from Watson. he's
1: sharp and he's he has that working man feel to him. He's a good soldier, obviously. Um, you know, you you can make sense of the world and what he lives in, but he and he, he does it himself, right? And that's why he reacts the way that he does. But he's also controlled by his own prejudices and his own influences and his own limitations, where Sherlock doesn't see limitations. And that's kind of where it, they juxtapose against each other. Uh, um, he offers a strong authorial voice, but he's definitely a surrogate for the audience and a mouthpiece for Conan Doyle in, in many ways to describe, and uh, not, not, not to sound too cynical, but the awesomeness of Sherlock Holmes.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's, there's a lot of fandom in here that there's almost instantaneous admiration.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's funny him. too, is because it's, the the way that was written is is, is that like Conan Doyle wasn't wasn't ob- enamored with his character as many other people were. So I think it's kind of funny that he created basically he took his teacher Joseph Bell and he's made him a detective by making a medical office a, a, like a, a medical doctor, a physician, um, a well respected one, and put him in the role of a detective and solving crimes where police work was so outdated, uh, was so backwards then you know in, in terms of just making the politicians happy and making the people happy whatever the result was you know this guy got hanged well no it doesn't matter nothing's happened anymore so move on that's right on, right yeah. Yeah. but here we have forensic the attempt at forensic evidence and making sure that, that the right perpetrators are captured I mean I think that in itself is um, uh, a way to described, you know what Conan Doyle might be doing with this character and with this with 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 these characters with these stories is bringing a new perspective to um, the standard policeman story. You know, mm-hmm. I mean they, they're they're well written characters, but so far they're they're just
0: kind of flat. Um, yeah, they're, they're kind of and flat. you're talking
1: about too about you know like we get the grand reveal and I think we need to go into the narrative part of when we get to the investigation because. Yep. The, the okay. build up, the, yeah, because the big buildup towards everything is, of course, the, this the, 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 the uh, I guess, the big set piece, you could call it, in Utah. Right. So, what, um, did, you, what did you give the principles? As a full, I gave it a, I was a little more generous. I gave it a four because it was an introductory story. And I found the characters focused believably into the world that they were. But I withheld, you know, the full five on the basis of that we're not getting the, um, uh, the heart of the characters yet, if you catch my drift. And I, I do, one yeah. thing I want to point out, you're talking about, you know, what drives Holmes and stuff and what can make him seem more human to us. I am really looking forward to the introduction and eventually of of his arch nemesis, Moriarty, because having a main character have an arch nemesis is a big character thing. Of course, because yes. it allows them to perceive, we see their view of justice by, by having the, the, the antagonist or their nemesis be be antithetical to that viewpoint that person has so we will see holmes's morality i think more of his character when he goes up against moriarty i'm 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 sure and that's what i'm excited for there too
0: well we we might see it in the next story i mean uh, you know it's just right it's just in this one he wasn't up against anything uh, uh, he was up up against nothing really uh, apart from evidence that he needed to put together and he could have done it like you know, alone sitting and doing a jigsaw puzzle or a crossword like your granny does in the newspaper. Like it wasn't well, I mean, exciting to follow that. To forget, he had to
1: be there. True, but he had to be there to. He had to observe. He had to observe yeah. things. Right, that's the thing. Yeah.
0: Um, well, look. In terms of the investigation, um, I, I there's a couple of great good scenes that I wanna I wanna talk about, and there's a couple of lagging moments that I wanna talk about in the story. Um, yeah, I, I, am I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with the eye for investigation, and, and the reason I'm not, I mean, it, it makes sense, but I, I, I don't want this to be all about the little clues and evidence. I need this no. to be. I, I mean, I think we need this to be uh, about the writing as well, because we need to look at these as literary texts as well as structural designed st- thrillers or mystery pieces. You know.
1: Um, so when we say the eye, the investigation, we're talking about not just the the investigation of the clues and everything. But we look at it as the the investigation as if we're looking back into a case file. And the case file shows the narrative of the crime, of the investigation, and the capture of the perp. So that is what we mean by an investigation, the story itself. All the stuff presented to us is the journal of Dr. John Watson, and that is that case file, that is that narrative. So by, by investigation, we refer to overall the narrative and all the faucets within
0: including the style of writing. That's what I'm trying to get at.
1: Yes. Including the style. Exactly. All the faucets within all, everything that we would uh, analyze.
0: I just know that I know that that's something I'm going to end up looking more at than you. I think just maybe because of, uh, of the way we, we read maybe because of the fact that I'm, I'm the English teacher and that that's something I pay more attention to maybe when we read. Um, And I just want to make sure that we don't just look at these things mathematically. You know, we have to look at them as art as well.
1: 100%.
0: Anyway, uh, with that said, um, I I just have a few things to say. So um, why don't you go ahead and talk to me about your view of the investigation. And I'll chip in if and when I hear something that I think, you know, I should. And and then uh, I'll give you my five cents.
1: As I mentioned, with the with a detective story like this in particular, first of all, you don't really get the sense of clues being presented to you. It's not like you're watching like some modern detective procedural show that they have. Like, oh, uh, I'll just give examples: uh, rhymes with hassle, um, or any kind of detective show, modern detective show that you see nowadays, where it's oh it's obviously the guest star that's going to be the killer right or something like that or the, the, they're so predictable nowadays in their formula that you can just you don't even need to think you know and what i liked about a study in scarlet was that the clues are there and they're la- they're presented by the author but they're not like underlined if you catch my drift you know they're, like you're because what you're doing is you're following sherlock holmes as a character and then, as you encounter Sherlock Holmes and watching, observing him, Watson is observing what Sherlock is looking at, but Sherlock is seeing something entirely different than what Watson is seeing. And I like that that the, that the, the clues are presented to us as through Watson, the surrogate, but we ignore them in a sense because we're trying to put our own theories together. But at the same time, the clues are presented, and when everything is all said and done, in this particularly in this story, I found a lot of the clues made perfect, perfect sense, and. Uh, um the, it's everything is clear cut in that respect in if you look at it uh once it's all read the actions of holmes and his reaction to certain developments propel the narrative the clues are not obvious as i mentioned uh, but nor are they predictably blatant as i was going back to like the, the modern tv procedurals that we see nowadays at least not in a formulaic fashion that 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 that, that they're not predictable the story as a whole it works uh, The backstory may be a little exotic and very jarring in comparison uh, to the rest of the tale. Um, The the revenge story, I I think, need not erupt from Mormon America to make this crime and this this mystery compelling. But it's interesting Conan Doyle went in that direction. Um, The introduction of Holmes and Watson and their relationship to me drove the story. And that's what I'm getting to is, is that the clues were presented to us, but we're also given or they were, or we were tempted to be given, anyways, a presentation of these characters doing what they do, and there's that's basically three things that do- Doyle is going on here. He has characters he wants us to follow. He has a mystery he wants us to be entertained by to put together, and then we have the other sub characters, and then just just this, this a sense of you know of romance, of adventure, and I think he fell under all those categories pretty well. Um, but I still found that by using Watson as a surrogate first-person voice, it kind of... Usually when you have a first-person narrative, you get a real feeling of the voices of that character. And while you got a feeling that, like, Watson was obviously annoyed or frustrated with Holmes at certain things or confounded by it, at the same time, he kind of seemed also a willing believer to the awesomeness, the radiant light that is Holmes. And Holmes comes through as an enigmatic figure, so we don't quite know him yet. So I think... The narrative fails a little bit. The investigation as a whole fails a little bit because we need a little bit more to see what they're seeing so that we can kind of play along at home, so to speak, you know, so we can kind of put the clues together. Was there any point in the narrative where you thought, aha, that's a clue, and then you were right? Like, did you suspect the handsome cab at all?
0: Uh, I, I knew there was something going on with the cabs. I couldn't, I, no, I didn't suspect it, but I knew there was something going on with the cabs simply by the fact that the f- first thing that Holmes does is he, he orders the cab to stop about 130 or whatever, how many yards away it was from the scene of the crime so that they could uh, approach it and can, cause he, he doesn't want too many tracks around that. I, I picked up on that. Good point. Good point. I, I also picked up on the fact that it would have been poisoned because there was no, um, there, there was no sign of strangulation. There was no sign of, uh, no wounds, no wounds. And so I, I suspected poison, but I, beyond that, I didn't know. I, I didn't pick up on the, um, uh, I didn't pick up on the, the German for revenge. I didn't pick up on the blood and uh, being, an, uh, you know, a nose thing, um, a nosebleed. I didn't, uh, I knew the wedding ring was connected, but I think everybody does. I didn't know how. Um, and, yeah, I just, uh, I think that was it, really. I knew the cab was part of it, but I certainly didn't think that he was a cabbie or, you know what I mean? I didn't think anything like that. And I obviously, yeah. I, I knew the drunk man had something to do with it because Holmes kind of breaks the fourth wall a bit and tells us that, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, in, 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 in many ways it does. I don't know, I just think that as a whole, I think it all worked together and it made the strongest part of the story for me was the fact that even though the characters were a little weaker than I wanted them to be, the, I think the narrative was the strongest part of the story. And even though we have that set piece, you know, in the middle there, um, um, the just, just you know, that one thing about the enigmatic nature of Holmes is um uh, jefferson's store hope story is kind of thrust upon us and it kind of cheats the narrative as something a, a, as like a, a an info dump almost you know mm-hmm. and i just found the presentation of it jarring like i would have found there were, if there I, I think i would have maybe preferred if the um the in the inf- the uh the middle storyline in utah i kind of was hoping that you know as suspenseful and uh Almost like a little, as you mentioned, I think in, in, a, in a message you sent me, Clint Eastwood movie kind of that it appeared to be. Uh, like, uh, I and as compelling and exciting as it was, I just felt that um, the pieces of that story would have been better layered within the mystery if it just took place in the present. If you catch my drift.
0: I do. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know that the the story would have worked the same way if that hadn't been a flashback. Um, I
1: think I think they could have. If, I think the flashback could have been maybe like a little smaller, and then you could have had more hints of towards things going on, right? But I think that would require to bring other people who are connected to that storyline over to London besides Drebber and Standerson and Hope, right? So okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, like I just think there could have been someone who. Who knew uh, Lucy or something like that? Or I, I, I guess it's just my perspective on how I would have told the story. Mm-hmm. But I I, but back then too, his stories were done a certain way, and I think in terms of being a like a fun adventure story, I, I think it works well within the narrative. And I think all the things all I all, all I mentioned, I think all the clues, all the clues go together. Like for example. The as you mentioned, pulling the carriage out before it arrives at the house, not to miss the crime scene, um, checking, you know, how he can see like the that the horse needs a new shoe, the gold ring in its presence, um, and then of course the constable, and then when they interviewed him and the, Holmes figuring out that he let the murderer go because obviously the murder's coming back for the gold ring and then of course that little twist that he put that Doyle puts in with the, the old lady showing up instead confounding Holmes and Watson almost like you know described almost about to laugh you know at Holmes's face you know what I mean yeah. like kind of having that kind of moment of, of schadenfreude for the character that kind of made Watson stand out a little bit more as a person in that scene uh, and uh And then Holmes just going, you know, just going along with it, you know, seeing what happens, being kind of annoyed, going, well, that must have been the villain in drag or something like that, you know, like, and that really wasn't the case at all. It's just that he had friends. And as you mentioned, uh, Holmes didn't think that someone like him could have friends, you know, he he doesn't think in that way in that kind of mindset. And that was kind of limitation on Holmes's part. So I did kind of like that chink in Holmes's armor that Doyle Doyle put in there. Um. That's all I have to say about the narrative and the investigation as a whole. I think it all worked together wonderfully. Okay. But I think what we need to get to is the style and the uh, and, and, and uh, the literature itself.
0: Well, um, I think that's that's all part of telling the good story. Um, I, I think that uh, the investigation of the murder scene, I really like that bit at the beginning, even though like yeah, you're just following him as he puts it all together, it's the first time. And although I don't have um, anything else to draw on, as a first Sherlock Holmes reader, um, I, I can sense that this is this is something important, and I don't mind spending 10 pages watching him sniff the floor and kind of measure the wall and kind of walk funnily and lie down on the ground. I don't mind any of that stuff because I feel like that's really important character writing as much as it is anything that has to do with this particular mystery or murder. Um, yes. So I like that stuff. Um, I, I have a very different opinion to um, how that second part of the story works the Clint Eastwood stuff you know as I said um I think that that's the best writing in the entire book I think Mm -hmm. that I agree I think I agree I think the way the environment's brought to life I think that the very human story like we we travel from these two sort of in their own way very odd in Sherlock very odd uh, men um, just kind of helping out the police into this very human story of of you know death and betrayal and survival and uh, so much wonderful natural imagery going on there, I felt like it was it was jarring. You used the word correctly. It was jarring, even though it's a flashback, and we're meant to say you know to be told this is this is what the killer tells us. It is very jarring, and how does that really suit with the writing style of a journal of a doctor who's just taking notes on this stuff? It doesn't, of course, it doesn't. yes, but this is obviously. Conan Doyle showing us that he can write stories like The Lost World as well he's yes. he's having a great time here in Utah and I'm having a, a blast with him um, yes. I, d- I don't like the way it sits in the story but uh, sorry I don't like the way it sits in the overall story of Studying Scarlet but um, for me it's the best writing in the entire book and it stands out as just really really interesting stuff John Ferrier and Lucy and Jefferson Hope and, uh, and Enoch Drebber and uh, these guys are all really interesting. And the, the fear, the compelling f- sense of kind of um, uh, escape. And I mean, this stuff is all yeah. really, really uh, tangible as you're reading it. And I was surprised at just how gripped I was by it. I, I mean, it, to me, it's up there with the best sequences of uh, any sort of drama I've read. I really liked it. I really liked yeah, the stuff in Utah.
1: It was compelling. It's jarring at first. I, you know, that's what I said. But, but it, yeah, and on on its own as like a piece of of literature, I mean, you can see the the Walter the Sir Walter Scott kind of influence in there. You know, that Rob Roy kind of storyline. You know, you can uh, see a bit of even Damas in there too, if you think about it. And it it uh, which was was also an influence of uh, of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as well as us. Uh, Stevenson as well, but um, it, it it feels to me that on its own, yes, it works very well, and there's some beautiful writing in there and whatnot. But I find that even though it is it is jarring in many ways, it kind of gives, like as you said, a humanity to everything that's going on there. So even though Holmes may be the analytical, lacking of sentiment, the human computer, you know, a human. Calculator, so to speak, in the storyline that we're kind of indifferent but fascinated by. The fact that this guy solved this mystery and he's, you know, he's uh taking part in this human drama, uh, to me, it, it brings the characters down to earth and makes me connect to people like Holmes and Watson in an emotional sense because of this storyline connecting to the main narrative through Joe Jefferson Hope.
0: Yeah, it complements them, doesn't
1: it? It, it complements them. That's exactly the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. So that's why, as a whole, I, I dropped uh, a solid 4.5 on the investigation.
0: Okay, cool. I went four on it um, because I wasn't—I I still I wasn't really interested. Just following Sherlock Holmes around, as like chasing him, basically. I'm chasing him as a reader, and that did take me out. Well, way. I was
1: wondering who the killer was. I mean, that kind of compelled you. Uh, i think perhaps
0: it it did but i knew that the killer was going to be someone i i I didn't meet until holmes told me who it was i knew that it was going to be like the jefferson Mm -hmm. hope sort of here he comes so i knew i wasn't going to figure it out well technically
1: you
0: you... yeah no i I thought it was very clear it was very clear for me in the in the reading that doyle conan doyle was not going to reveal um this killer to me in a way that i was going to be able to figure out who it was like there's no sniff mm. of Mormon anything around this, you know. there's no sniff of this being. There was a sniff of it maybe with the, the cab, that the you know that the cab evidence was there. But no, I, I just felt like I was chasing Holmes too much. I went four. I mean, four is still a very good mark, and that second half of the uh, that second part of the story really brought it up for me. But um, yeah. I was at a three point five before. Basically, the way I go is like this: the London stuff, following Holmes around in this particular story. I'm looking forward to following him around more, so it wasn't a complete failure. But in this story, following him around, I felt, was kind of an afterthought. I knew where it was going. I would just have to wait until I got told that, oh, here we go. There wasn't much of a mystery I could put together. I could only kind of deal with a little bit of facts. I gave that a three three overall. Um, The stuff in Utah, I found, was a completely different story. It was up there with Gone with the Wind type stuff, you know. That was a 5 so it, it really, out of it just knocked it out of the park for me. And I just took the the mean average out of four. So I went four for the investigation. Um, mm. I liked it. I thought the clues is, but I'm not going to talk about the clues in the setup because you just did that so well yourself. I just went four yes. right in the middle, the three for the London stuff, five for the backstory in Utah and four overall.
1: Well, I think the London stuff, I mean, it has merit too. I mean, you have the pre-investigation scenes like with what. what Sherlock Holmes' great introduction, uh, them discover you know going to Baker Street and you know figuring I play the violin does that bother you only if you're a good player you know those sort of those sort of scenes are great I kind of I, I like the scene where where Gregson he shows up all content he's caught the criminal and Sherlock Holmes is like sarcastic almost with him about it and that was a nice little bit of character in that he can be a little bit of an arrogant ass and not care you know kind of showing him a, a little bit of a flawed character and. Um, it's kind of a, something that I think maybe perhaps the modern Sherlock uh, with Cumberbatch seems to display is that this man is a high-functioning autistic individual, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so, yeah. And I, I, I get that. And I did like the London stuff. I just gave it a three. I mean, it, it was. Oh, in, in
1: comparison to that, yes, one hundred percent
0: middling. It was middling to good. Yeah, yeah and that's what. And the... that's what a three out of five is in my mind. You know, it's a passing yeah. mark. It yeah. kept me. It kept me interested, but I didn't like the pursuit because it wasn't a pursuit i was five steps behind sherlock holmes all the time and that's not that wasn't engaging to me like i'd like to go with my characters i don't want to go after them
1: Yeah, and it, it makes sense but i, I think too that this one thing it must consider though is this the trappings of the mystery genre in in in, in general you know yes and i'm um, gonna, have to, it's I'm, how I'm gonna well... have to get used to that Yeah, it's how well the author lays out the clues for you. Like, you should be able to find the clues or or have an idea or have a list of suspects on your mind. I think that thing, I think that's what a good procedural detective show does in comparison is is that it gives you a little of suspects or ideas or variables to choose from which could possibly lead to it which makes the fun of the show watching is guessing who it is you know well, yeah and uh, I'm
0: gonna need to uh, I'm gonna need to develop that strength as a reader like these these stories should by that you know example they should make me a better reader they'll make me more in tune with the genre and I'll become better at you know picking these things up but this is this is day one I'm being asked what I think I'm telling you know, I'm, I'm yeah I'm not, I'm not denying that the genre demands this from me. I'm just saying maybe right now I'm ill-prepared to give it a better mark because it, it hasn't yet registered as something I like to do as a reading experience. I have read a lot. Well, I've read some mysteries. I haven't read a lot. Um, this is a formula that I'm, I'm going to have to get used to. And yeah. I'm look, as I said earlier, Josh, like I don't want to keep repeating myself, man. We, we You know, we've got to wrap this up. But I'm, yeah. the thing with the character is like I'm okay with a formula that's kind of boring to me as long as I'm getting other stuff happening like backstory, like like um, origin stuff like uh, like you were saying antagonists to the main character so that we can see his sense of morality like that's that's great like i don't mind having having a, a gimmicky sort of um formula as long as i'm getting other things that can make me enjoy the character and that's what yes. I'm, I'm sure that conan doyle's going to deliver that so i'm just going to go along with it so i went uh for four anyway let's uh, let's move on to yeah. traders unless you got something sure. else to say
1: uh no I'm pretty I'm, okay. I, I think Great. I think you said that succinctly you said that well and uh, i i am um, I, I respect your your uh, your view on that your kind of embryonic position here in the detective genre so we'll move on from here and we'll see if that grows right perpetrators perpetrators I gave this a solid four um Me I like the surprising oh good good i, I really like the surprising motivations of hope. I liked that he wasn't, you know, just it uh, wasn't just some evil man who had some like blackmailing scheme or something like that. Um, I really liked. Uh, I found also I found him intelligent. I, I I found him, you know, he was resourceful, and you gotta admire his passion and what he's doing. And I also liked in the end his resolve. You know, like he knew he was going to die, and uh, he, he and he didn't care that he was going to be hanged for avenging what he thought was a right that. You know, and it brings up an interesting moral point about how you know right and wrong and versus justice. You know what I mean? And uh, it brings up it's 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 thought provoking, and that kind of made him a complex character in in, in my own way because being an American, he he probably has a very strong sense of justice in his way. And but when that ideals that he probably came in because I believe he came from the east. His character, did he not? He came out all the all the way out east to go to the Comstock, and then that's how he became like a traitor with the uh, the the uh, Mormons. Originally, so, yeah, yeah. Now, I I might I might have missed this, but I don't know. Did they he say that he was also like a Civil War veteran or something like that, or?
0: Oh, I'm not sure. Uh, no, he
1: he, hmm. he he would have been too too, too young, so I can't yeah. draw on those conclusions. Yeah, he would have been too young. Ferrier might have been. Ferrier, possible, yeah.
0: Anyway, I, I agree with you. I think that Hope's really cool. I like the way that, that he blends the, the villain and the, the hero type thing, because I think you're right. He's really more of a hero here. And I like that his, um, his determination, like that, that's, that's some resolve this guy's got.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And his resolve and, and love and, and revenge, and one isn't great and one is one is wonderful, but at the same time, how they conflict with each other and how they drive him as a person, um, it just creates a very compelling portrait and uh i just liked he just wasn't a conventional type of you know killer in in, in this respect yeah, yeah. he wasn't and, uh, he
0: wasn't waxing his mustache and twisting it with his little evil grin
1: and it's kind of i kind of feel bad for him you know that like with sherlock on the case that he was the only guy that could bring this you know that could you know Figure him out because Holmes is resourceful in his own way. He just lacks, I guess, the the passion or the compassion, I, I suppose, or empathy that um, uh, Hope has, uh, you know, as a person. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, because this guy even gave the people that he he wanted to like he didn't he didn't outright shoot them in the head, outright stab them unless unless well, unlike Standerson, in which he had which maybe I've even had to defend himself and to uh, to kill him, um, but he offered them like a chance to to live you know so he does have a strong mor- morality um but they never quite explained and either like in i never really figured it out either like in the books i was hoping in the books actually because i remember like if you see i know you've seen a study in pink the modern adaptation the bbc did and they never quite explain how one kills and one doesn't you know like how do you know what when- one does? How did the guy know which one killed and which one didn't? Yeah, it's kind of was, like, was, was, of like was, I think. I think. Yeah, was is... hope to, was hope taking like a chance, to, like to because you know to, to take the pill that he you knew that like he could die as well. You know what I mean?
0: Yes, I think he was. I mean, the way I read it is that there, there's so much fatalistic imagery in of uh, symbolism in the story, particularly with the idea of the saints and the angels, and these things are kind of Godsend. Um, Messages to these people to move here, to to do this, and you must do this way, you know, the bountiful life and all that kind of stuff, that you you live and die by the sword. And I think that there was enough of that in that build-up to the explanation of the pills, for me at least, to believe that Hope would have been a guy who would just take his chances and feel as though he was righteous in these cases, and that the right pill would go down the right throat. That's kind of the way I felt it. And, that yeah, that's kind of how I,
1: I read it okay yeah i think we're on the same boat then when it comes to a hope then uh, a great perpetrator mm-hmm. and uh, it's
0: i don't know if you did the same thing i'm guessing you didn't um just because you haven't spoken about them but i it's hard not to think about um strangerson and drebber as oh perpetrators yes of course of course they are perpetrators in their own right that really motivated the, the murder you know their motivation was um, what led to Hope's motivation? So, do we do we talk about these guys now, or do we talk about them as the supporting players?
1: I guess they're supporting players, but I think we could make honorable mention to them as perpetrators because, in a way, they were. Okay. Um, right. Particularly, well, we, like we Drebber seems like he was driven by his own sense of. Uh, I mean, Drebber was a was a licentious pig, obviously. But to Mary, um, he could have that. Uh, he was kind of a bit more. Complex in the sense where he could have been told by his father to marry that girl because he had to and he was following family law and believing you know his family um, said what they wanted for him was right and that it was his right to take Lucy and marry her and and uh, make her one of his brides and and, and whatnot right and and the, the, I, I guess but then you have Standerson who just seems kind of like a uh, more of a Machiavellian type figure you know like also in the sense is that. He's also the man who takes action. I mean, he, he does all the dirty work for Drebber, being his secretary and all. But he also uh, is the one that killed Joseph Ferri- uh, John Ferrier as well. So it's and so he I think he, because of that he had a more bloodier death, whereas Drebber kind of had the choice of fate uh, given to him um, because. I, I think he was a morally conflicted individual in his own way and he was a weak weak man whereas Sanderson just seems like that he was ice cold you know what I mean yeah
0: so I went I went four as well for perpetrators so yeah four. Um, what about the environment uh, you're probably gonna say more about this than I am because I, I liked the London stuff I thought it was nice um, I enjoyed the the kind of multi- I mean in cinematic terms the establishing shots. I liked those in this story. I liked Holmes's apartment. I liked the description we get of, of kind of the furniture and, and the double and, bay windows. Yeah, I like all that stuff. That that's cool. But yeah. the 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 murder crime the murder scene itself was yeah, it was all right, but um Brixton um Lord you know, it was it was it was good. Uh nothing really stand out there for me although it was a dingier part of the the place like i like the washing lines and things hanging out as he was going to talk to constable rance like i thought that's something that yeah like, like like
1: that tenement bent in mm-hmm. the low areas hey mm-hmm. and yeah, i like the good. visuals of the streets of london and the cabs going by and whatnot and uh but i, you think, know, like, we, I they... think
0: there's more there's better in store like i can't i don't think this was the i don't want to i don't want to entertain a, a conversation about how this was yeah
1: yeah, the, I think we have all agree that the London stuff was was great. Like the whole thing at St. Bartholomew's was a, was a really good scene. I think the whole thing with, um, as you mentioned, uh, with the constable and Lauriston Gardens. I think they service this narrative in their own way quite well. Yes. But they're nothing compared to like you know the alkali flats of Utah. No, that's for sure. No,
0: they're, they're definitely not, and they're nothing compared to what I've read in other. Victorian stories about London, like I think I think we have better London writing to come from Doyle. So I'm not I, I can't give this top score because a I don't think the London stuff. I, I you use the word great, I disagree with you. I think it was good. I think it was good and serviceable. I don't think it was okay. great. Um, so good,
1: actually, good, yeah, I use serviceable later on. So I think in a lot of terms, um, I'm so used to using terms like awesome in my daily you know uh, le- 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 lexicon, and you got to really think about it when you're when you're analyzing stuff like this. Great carries a lot of measure, and good carries its own measure as well. So you got to kind of think carefully on the words that you say to describe things when you're analyzing. Yeah, them, I'm, right? I'm, not, I'm not trying and to pick at your. Uh, at your, uh, your I think choice. good is a. I think good is a great description for the <laughs> London narratives. <laughs> right. Well, look, dude, I'm, uh,
0: that's just the way I'm reading it. I'm not trying to, you know. No, force you up. You, but I'm,
1: you're also showing a point of view to me that I don't consider, and and, and that's important. Well, me, so I, I appreciate so, yeah. that.
0: Well, I went for overall uh, because the Utah good stuff I. was really good, and, I yeah, I thought it was great. And I would encourage that. I mean, I know we're closing shop here pretty soon, but I would encourage anybody to pick this book up and read that second part if you want, if you want. Like, that's the type of thing I, I would instruct my students to go read, you know, because it, it's a great example of how you can bring setting to life, um, naturalistic imagery, and it's great. It, that Utah, and And none of it feels heavy-handed to me. Like, I'm enjoying it all. No.
1: Oh, absolutely. We I mean, just consider this chapter five here, um, The Avenging Angels. All night their courses lay through intricate defiles and over irregular and rock-strewn paths. More than once they lost their way, but Hope's intimate knowledge of the mountains enabled them to regain the track once more. When morning broke, a scene of marvelous, though savage beauty lay, betwe- lay before them. In every direction the great snow-capped peaks, hemmed them in, peeping over each other's shoulders to the far horizon. So steep were, were the rocky banks on either side of them that the larch and the pine seemed to be suspended over their heads, and to need only a gust of wind to come hurtling down upon them. Nor was the fear entirely an illusion, for the barren valley was thickly strewn with trees and boulders which had fallen in a similar manner. Even as they passed, a great rock came thundering down with a hoarse rattle, which woke the echoes in the silent gorges and startled the weary horses into a gallop. Mm, it's good that's like a panoramic david lean shot in in, in a paragraph you know what i mean like
0: it actually reminds Uh, me of um well i don't know why it does but it when i was reading about that it it made me think of there's a shot in the wizard of oz like um it must be near when the monkeys get released or something and going over (laughs) the mountains and, and through the valley like it's I don't know why that came to my mind but it, it's very ominous very menacing
1: absolutely it's like it's it's, the, it's pathetic fallacy right it's it's nature showing uh as it's, it's nature being dis- displayed as almost uh and uh hostile to the characters in that situation
0: mm-hmm. yeah and it, it yeah. kind of
1: gives the point of this promised land where the where the mormons are staying you know is this hostile terrible place you know in many ways you know like on the salt flats and whatnot and and just so I guess it's some kind of point to say that it's they've settled in a wasteland with uh, a questionable, you know, mor- 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 morality based into their foundations. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the promised land, really. Yeah. And you think of salt and, and whatnot, too, and you, with the rose connection, you think of salt, you think of Lot's wife, you know, the woman who turned back. To watch, Gamor- watch Sodom and Gomorrah one more time, and then she turns to a pillar of salt. Mm. So there's that, you know, there's that biblical kind of feel to it too.
0: This is a really well-researched part of the story. Like, it, I know that he was a man of faith, and I know that he would have, you know, he understood these things. But Conan Doyle is still writing about a tradition that's not his own. He's still writing about a part of the world that I don't know that he's seen as a as a traveler. He's doing a great job of bringing it to life, both the culture, the, the religious faith and the, the, the location. Like, it's a really good marriage here in this section of the writing. And anyway, for, for the environment, I went for overall.
1: Yeah, exactly. As I said, they're all wonderful visuals, um, but particularly the Utah sequence and they're described with such credulity and they felt researched as, as you said, you know, like, and I know I, I'm reading about Tone Cone Doyle and I don't know if he went over to America. So it's hard to say, like, where is he getting these descriptions of it? Is he using, is he kind of like digging into the, cause he was into poetry. So is he digging into like, uh, into Shelley or into, uh, Wordsworth or Coleridge, you know, is he going into the sublime there, trying to imagine this hostile wasteland and yeah, adding his that's own influences? That's a, good,
0: that's a good point you got there because some of it does read like Kubla Khan, doesn't it? It does, yeah. That's a
1: good. That's, that's that's a very good example,
0: which would tie in with the romanticism of it all. But we're maybe well, we're not getting off track. We're just bringing other stuff into it. What about uh, the supporting
1: players then?
0: Um, because I considered Drebber and Strangerson more the perpetrators, I gave them a little higher mark. Uh, I, I didn't mm-hmm. really consider them supporting players. Um, here, I thought more about the two police inspectors, uh, the hired help, kind of like his little um, his little Oliver Twist army that he's got going around.
1: London. <laughs> yeah, the Baker Street Irregulars, yeah, yeah those that, guys are great.
0: I, I'm looking forward to seeing more of them. Um, there's not really a lot more the, the supporting cast. We've got the constable, and we've got the guy who shows up for the ring, and we've got um, obviously the man who the introduced them and the Charpentiers but yeah they they didn't do much for me to be honest I, no. went, I went three for the supporting cast of this story because and and uh, while it's not the greatest of marks out of five it's still an okay mark and I don't think this is a story that needs supporting cast it's all about Holmes and Watson and about the murderer and the two guys that he kills so um, I don't think for this story it needs to be too over complicated with mm-hmm. backstage cast so I, I just went three
1: I was at 3.5. I agree with mostly all you say there. Um, but I, I found that in a great Dickensian way, they flushed out the narrative and made it made London beside the descriptions, you know, come to life a bit more. Like the Baker Street Irregulars, uh, Stamford, you know, giving some history to Watson. There, um, I found Lestrade's is being suggested a little more complex than Gregson's portrayed. Gregson just seems yeah, to be kind with the, that too. The like the typical doof, and Lestrade, like even even Holmes, even kind of has almost as he mentions. A grudging a slight grudging kind of respect like he's a you know he's a service and stuff like that but then there was that forgery thing that he got he made a fog of and and what and whatnot right so um but at the, but uh greg's it kind of seems to, seem to be kind of like the fool of this of the story you know for the purpose of a plot twist right so yeah um then you have, yeah, the Baker Street Irregulars with uh, Wiggins as the head there and then the old lady that shows up and the old crone that mystifies. I, I think all these add flavor. And like the maid, even the mention of the maid that adds the door, every person that kind of fits into a-, a Sherlock Holmes story, how I feel, I think they all play a certain part of shaping the world around Holmes and and carrying the story. And not to mention, you have the Utah sequence as well. I mean, yeah, we have Dr- Drebber and, Str- and Standerson, But we also have like Brigham Young too right and uh, he was kind of a a little antagonist in his own way he this is a historical figure we're talking about so a little more flavorful than than you in terms of characters so I gave it 3.5
0: okay um I don't disagree with your assessment of how these these smaller characters are meant to decorate the London in a Dickensian way Uh, I think that it's a it's a nod a tip of the hat in that direction but I don't think the story is long enough. I don't think it's deep enough in terms of like because Holmes was already such a clever guy. Um, we never return to any of these sites more than once. They're just kind of the the postage stamp. There you go, get the job done. They're move, the move extras in the, the scene. Yeah, I mean Dickens returns to these types of secondary characters time and again to to flesh them yes. out a bit. Th- these are just these are just caricatures that we receive, and so I I, I don't I don't see that there's as much to them bringing. London to life, it's more like, here's a bit of something that is going on, um, but we're not going to return to it. And, and this I, will be, I, all... you know, so that's how I feel yeah, about it. You... I, I agree with the idea of tipping the hat. I think that they could have been in a longer text returned to these, the you know, the uh, Charpentier and, and um, um, the constable and all that stuff and his family, like that stuff could have been cooler, but I could see what he was trying to do, but it didn't work for me that much in that way, in such a small story.
1: And also, you're limited to how you can perceive them because you hear from them from secondhand, right? We learn about the Charpentiers and how they are from Gregson. Yeah. We learn about Standerson finding his body and the description of, of the holidays uh, at the holidays hotel there, the ho- sorry the holidays hotel I think of Holiday Inn. My apologies. Um, uh, through Lestrade, you know, we but yet at the same time, the most vivid and most colorful story that we get. Um, in terms of characterization and writing and stylistic, comes from the perpetrator. So, so I, I I just find that an interesting dynamic. It is um,
0: yeah, and it makes for a curious story. It'll be it'll be interesting to see if that continues, or if you or if the next couple. I, think in, the, I, th- more domestic. I think
1: in the whole, we're, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot. I think in these individual stories, we're going to see kind of like a, a cast of extras and, and you know a typ- of and your typical Dickensian. Uh, characters you know filling in the blanks as uh, you know and, and and for each scene
0: yeah like it would be good to go back and see the same constable in a, in a seven or eight stories you know from now like he yeah to be oh case yeah
1: case. exactly yeah yeah that would be kind of um uh, appreciative i've also i also find though is is that um are we going to be looking in the end uh characters that appear in the world of Sherlock Holmes. As, as within that with the entire sweep of the serial you know what i mean oh, or are we, we going to we be can, looking at
0: we've got time to refine our decisions <laughs> we just oh, at 100%. The beginning of this we're just at the beginning that's true yeah just, just don't, get, our, don't get, just get too as excited the <laughs> and the timing and, and the work of, of these episodes needs to evolve and improve and find its feet so too will will our decisions about what we do at the end of all this amen amen well, look that that's a mark of three for me um, I'll, I'll do the totals here now um, you got any closing comments on a study in scarlet
1: uh, as a first uh, Sherlock Holmes case um, intriguing and uh, really shows a lot of potential of what could what can to come especially not just in terms of character um, and uh, and mystery and adventure but also in terms of writing and style um, I'm cu- I'm really curious to see you know if Conan Doyle, you know, will top you know the uh, the the uh, Jefferson Hope backstory.
0: Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see because he's really come out the gates cracking with that one. Um, but in total, what? in total, Josh, uh, out of a score of twenty five for this, the first Sherlock Holmes adventure, you went twenty out of twenty five. Your total, okay. and I was eighteen point five. So not oh. too not too far away from one another, um, yeah. but we disagree Our... on some things.
1: Yeah, our own idiosyncrasies and our own preferences are kind of, we're, we're, we're close, but there's about a 2.5% gap.
0: 1.5% <laughs> gap, but...
1: 1.5% gap, yes.
0: What I'm what I'm looking had, forward to now is, now that this first one's out of the way, I'm really looking forward to seeing how our, um, if these conversations can get to be a little more organic, like we'll still obviously light the pipes as we do, every, as we'll, we're going to do every episode, but... We'll we'll be able to just come and have chats and not not feel so constricted yes. to you know time because we we want to be able to do this in two hours so it'll be um, it'll be a challenge to you know to to try to get the right balance of organic conversation with you know pr- pr- produced uh, and scripted uh, scoring.
1: One thing I wanted to mention, and I didn't get to, I didn't really get to this point in the uh, in the end of the in the end of my plot summary, but I do want to, for those who read the books or haven't read the books, I should say this is a spoiler. Is is that Jefferson, before he's about to be hanged or or tried to be hanged, um, he simply um, the aneurysm kicks in and takes him out, and he dies with a smile on his face. Mm-hmm. What did you cool. think of that ending? I like that. I thought that
0: was a good ending, um, given that there was so much heart imagery and that he had done his job. He had returned. You know, he he had exacted his revenge on the two that smited him and abused his family or his wife, his family to be, and the man he yeah. respected, in the father-in-law. I think that it made sense that she died from a broken heart, he died from a contented heart, and so in in that way, they're sort of, you know, meeting each other in the afterlife. You know.
1: Yeah, I thought I thought, there, a... was, I thought
0: there was a roundness to the story that way. Like it, it it was kind of it was kind of juvenile, kind of silly but also uh, kind of fitting. Like I, I was happy with that.
1: Yeah. It's a little bit pat, but you know, but cause I think it would have been more interesting if he did went to jail for it or something like that. Right. And yes. I think, I think that, I think that would have been a less romantic kind of writer that probably would have done that. I, I, and I think Conan's, yes. Doyle, in his own, I guess, his own Scott's passion, he found the actions of hope justified and he felt that his readers would want to feel justified in his own way. So I think he just carried it out that he kind of gets away with it, you know, and what's, what's we're allowed... Guy, what's
0: a guy like him going to do? Like, what, what's he going to do if he if he doesn't get, if he doesn't die, if he doesn't get arrested? Like, wh- what's he going to do? What kind of life's he going to have? His whole thing has been chasing these guys down.
1: Yeah, he's just basically waiting for the aneurysm to kick, essentially, is what he's doing. Oh, yeah. I think you'll enjoy, though, um, Down the Road, I'm not sure which book it's in, but Holmes reads Watson's A Study in Scarlet, and he has a nice little review of it. So. Oh, that's cool. So I'm really curious to what you think of, of, of his little comment yeah. on the story. Yeah, we'll get
0: there. Um, look, uh, one of the things that we want to do at the end of every one of our episodes, or perhaps as a feature of it, we haven't yet decided where we're going to put it, but for today, we're going to put it at the end. We're going to um, We're going to play a little piece of music to to exit. And because Holmes is introduced to us here as a fan of Mendelssohn and as a violinist, is introduced to us here as a fan of Mendelssohn and as a violin player uh, decided that we're going to play us out uh, on our first inaugural episode with uh, one of Mendelssohn's movements for violin and piano and this is the movement in G minor Um, for me Josh on my part uh, I'm glad that we got this started I'm glad that we